the, the punitive model for incarceration has never worked from nine from the formation of the the prison industrial complex in 94 with the with the crime bill to now it has never worked and instead it's it's virtually enslaved entire populations and yeah. we've done very little to improve that and um, i think positive change is is just one example of a number of examples that can make immeasurable change in the lives of the incarcerated and really help all of us move forward together because these are our brothers Absolutely. these are american human being thinking feeling souls with tremendous potential that deserve to be loved that deserve that second chance all of us have fucked up i mean Fucking every single amen. person that's listening to this podcast has fucked up that's and right. probably fucked up immeasurably right. and probably violated deep principles in their core that's that right. they are fucking ashamed that's of right. well so have these people that's but you right. know what Let's let's forgive. Let's right. move forward and let's get better together. That's you know? right. And as crime and violence soars in this country right now, there's no there's no population that can have a bigger effect on the people that are committing those crimes as people have gone through it, been through it, been punished, served mm -hmm. their time and have learned from it. You yeah. know, there's that's an it's an immense power. I'm that, so glad that, that you they said have. That. I'm so it's glad an immense you said power that. that they have. think people's idea of like oh going into prison like that's scary or that mm -hmm. it's like you, you can't I I find it extraordinarily welcoming totally. even though, though maybe you've been inundated Absolutely. with like these images where you see them like oh yeah. that's scary you know yeah. or like that's off-putting they don't want me here it's like mm -hmm. I, I found it to be sort of just the opposite absolutely it's it's the first thing that people say when they come visit or when they ask they say don't do you feel safe in there do you feel safe yeah. in there yeah are the dogs safe in there yeah are the are the dogs safe from the people who aren't in the program and I tell them I feel the safest that I've ever felt. I mean, wow. when you, when you, not only do I feel safe, like to be plugged into your purpose and to be a, emotionally able to, to convey like direct, utter love for, cause you're walking into a place where, you know, people have to abide by a code that is to not show weakness, to That's not right. show emotions, to not show certain types of love, to not really be vulnerable in, in any way, shape or form, because, um, you know, a lot of people are, are soldiering in pr prison and there's a, a strict code that you have to abide by to keep yourself safe. And to, you know, I don't necessarily have to abide by those rules. So I can go in there and just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make as much eye contact as I can. I'm going to acknowledge as many people I can. I'm going to try to acknowledge their humanity. I'm going to shake their hands. Yeah, if man. they want a hug, I'm going to give them a hug. Yeah. And, and, Usually what happens is if you walk in and you give somebody a hug who's in the program or not in the program, when you leave, they want another hug. They'll yeah, come yeah. up to you right before you leave yeah. and say, Hey oh, man, what's cool, up? Man. You know, and, and it's, um, it's one of my favorite things in the world because it really is a, um, a profoundly dark place. It is a profoundly dark place. And, um, when I started working in there, there's a strict code that you're supposed to abide by in terms of certain types of conduct. But I think some of the, uh, the administrators really understand that, um, a lot of these guys are here maybe because they weren't hugged in yep. life. And yep. so if you got some hugs to give and you got some love to give, we're going to let him do that. And, and, and it's super important to, to know, I imagine that those people who gives, give you sort of the, the rules and regulations and set that conduct, like they work there and it's, yeah. and it's, it's much different if you, if you're, if you're sure. coming in, you're not sort of one of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, but one of the other cool things about the dog program in a variety of these different facilities is that there really isn't a, when it comes to correctional officers and the incarcerated, there is a plexiglass barrier between them, if not something more rigid. And you really can't cross a certain number of boundaries. There's not really any reason to be talking to each other. There's not really any reason, unless you're up to something no good or they are, mm -hmm. right? And when you have the dog program on the yard, there's so much 
required per our operational procedure that involves correctional officer involvement and student inmate involvement. Oh, that's cool. So they have to get along and they have to interact with each other and there has to be, so there's this communication now. There's this, uh, there are these new parameters um, that allow integration, that allow communication and I think allow for just a safer, more understanding place. And, and that's what you gotta do because I'm telling you, um, we, you were talking about your friend, you know, who, who's up in Tehachapi State Prison now and being incarcerated at 14 for a loss of life crime and given 35 to life is the norm. It's what we see all the time. Um, one of my students who now is one of our employees, same deal. He was tried at 14 as an adult, went straight to adult prison. Uh, I met him at Corcoran State Prison on level four, 180 yard, uh, Charlie Yard, the most dangerous yard in California. Hmm. Um, and it's the only, only time we've ever had a dog program on a level four, 180 prison yard ever. And um, same thing, he did 18 and a half years and, and uh, he's 31 years old, 32 now. And, and uh, he teaches our boys juvenile program in Malibu wow. and he's a professional dog trainer. But yeah, I mean, that is, that is the norm. And that's the vast majority of the students that we see are folks that had, um, you know, most of them are, are gang involved, uh, loss of life, you know, crimes. And um, that's by far most of what I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I get, I guess just to, to, to kind of start out, if you could just kind of walk us through sort of like what the program is. And then I'd just love to hear about sort of how you got there and stuff, yeah, but, yeah, but sure, like, absolutely. yeah, just tell. And then I can give you a, give you your gifts in a bit. Awesome. Uh, so positive change is a comprehensive inmate canine training program that we developed to help give hope and opportunity to incarcerated people and pets. Um, I founded Marley's Mutts 14 years ago. You know, we started Positive Change almost eight years ago. Okay. Um, Positive Change started after a friend of mine got out of prison, uh, 13 years, incarcerated at 17, got out and he was 30, and it was had very much been worn down by the prison system. He was nearly feral when he got out of prison. Wow. I don't mean to say that disparagingly. I just meant it was very difficult for him to have personal relationships, to to talk to a man without having some sort of a complicated size up scenario to, to interact with a woman. All of these things were brand new to him. And he, you know, wrestled with drugs in prison. And I gave him a dog when he got out dog mm. that I was fostering shadow. She had been, uh, she'd been shot in the chest. We had to remove two lobes of her lungs. Mm. She's just a beautiful pit bull. And that dog changed everything about his life. Wow. Changed every aspect of, well, first it gave him the ability to love himself. And it gave him the ability, just like it did when I was getting sober, to take one step at a time with your dog with you when you were too intimidated or scared to do it on your own. Can, can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, for I think for a lot of us who are, whether it's newly sober or if you've been incarcerated, there is a, for me anyway, I was scared of people, places, and things, terrified of people, places, and things. I did not know how to have you know, whether it be vulnerable interactions or just day-to-day -day interactions with people sober. I had not been sober my entire life. Right. But my dog, Marley, just like Shadow did for him, allowed me to to face the day, allowed me to, to put one foot in front of the other, get myself out of my shell and start to have interactions, start to go to the market, start to go to the hospital. I bring my dog everywhere. Yeah. And, and it started to help me break loose of that oppressive, th those that oppressive feeling that just kept me locked inside of myself. It's, you know, by myself, um, the simplest things were difficult. Trying to go to the supermarket, trying to do anything I needed to do for myself was, was terrifying. You give me my dog, you give me a 95 pound Rottweiler pit bull. I can breathe. Um, 
if say I'm, I'm interacting with you, if, if I'm nervous about the interaction, we got our dog to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We have some common denominator. Yeah, we yeah. can relate about that. Yeah. And nine times out of 10 people always want to relate about your dog. For sure. You know, if it's just two people talking, especially yeah. if there's no alcohol involved, yeah. it might be kind of awkward. Yeah. You might yeah. struggle through a little yeah. bit of the, you know, especially if that's been a part of the way that you've interacted for so long. When totally. you take something out, there's a big hole there totally. and you, you fill yeah. it with that dog. And then you, you introduce a, a dog like that and you got something to talk about. You're talking about their dog you're talking about him and all of a sudden you have this bond this friendship this common denominator that you're bonding over and uh, for me that was critically important and, and for Robbie it was as well and his life I mean when I met him there was there's very little eye contact there was I could tell this was a person that was really struggling to understand where he fit in society and then after we gave him shadow he started giving his testimony with me. Mm. He started speaking about his incarceration. Mm. He started speaking about his recovery. He started talking about his experience as a, as a gang member. He started talking about his, all of these things. And you just saw him grow and wow. grow. And, and I think he would tell you his experience was as well as what mine was, is that I, I started to be able to, to love myself. You know, you, you, um, you can't have a dog like that, a bond with a dog like that, that is just feeding you undying unconditional love and not have some of it land you know and and have you start to love yourself some yeah. and for me that was that, my lifelong struggle is loving myself that huh. is my lifelong struggle but for whatever reason when when that blinding love is communicated through a dog's eyes and through a dog's body language <laughs> it it lands and you kind of feel yourself i don't know if you've ever done this but man if i've had a day i come home and i crawl on the ground with my beta I just feel it and you go, oh yeah. God, all right, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you root down into that love and you root down into that vibration. Yeah. Dogs have just the, the best vibration, man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to make a long story short, I saw, Rob, you know, when Robbie got out of prison, he had very little hope that he was going to succeed. There was not much, you know, out there for him. You give him that dog and he starts to build confidence. He starts to build self-esteem. He starts to build experience. He starts to, to face fears that he didn't think he could face. And then all of a sudden we've hired him. And then after, you know, he was our ranch manager, he went on to start his own organization called Strength of Shadow. Hmm. So now he's, you know, a formerly incarcerated gang member to a nonprofit, wow. you know, director and and, awesome. um, and and making an incredible impact in his community. And so after that, you know, I knew that we had to try to get rescue dogs into prison. And I, I knew that was something that if we could just figure out how to do it, it would it would change potentially tens of thousands of lives, you know, and, and really give us a, a way to save a lot of dogs that otherwise couldn't be saved. But it was hard, man. We spent four years trying to get into the prison system. You know, we started at Lairdo County Jail in Kern County. We, st we tried it to Hatchby State Prison and we just kept getting, we were greeted with brick walls. I mean, there was no um, interest in not only dog programming, but really anything that was um, sort of pro-inmate or could be potentially viewed as pro-inmate. Uh, so when we finally had uh, Warden David Long over at California City Correctional Facility, he took a gamble on us and he said, uh, you know, I, I love what you guys are trying to put together. Let's work on on making this operational procedure fit. And I want you guys at my prison. And so January 2016, with the help of some of the best trainers on the planet, Leah Marquez, Lisa Porter, Kim Erickson, uh, Sam Johnson, we were able to start that program and um, we had 30 student inmates, 10 dogs right off the euthanasia list, living in that wow. prison wow. and rehabilitating every three months. So it's a, it's a 14 week long program. We send dogs basically from the shelter system, from usually from the euthanasia list and usually large young dogs. Wow. 
like your dog. Wow. Those are the dogs that are being put to sleep at our shelters. That's right. And they're being put to sleep at our shelters because they don't have the skills to be adopted and stay adopted. Yep. Whether yep. that's leash training, you know, potty training, crate work, they might be reactive with other dogs. Yep. So there's so much that these dogs need to understand in order to get adopted and stay adopted. And that's what we were able to accomplish in the program. And and how do you, so, so I, uh, and, and I mean, there's so many parallels between, you know, the, those dogs that, the, the, the fear, the, 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 the bigotry, the, oh, the, yeah. you know, how that, how people yeah. perceive those kinds of dogs and how, totally. you know, people perceive th these kinds of inmates. How do you, I mean, how, how do you choose specifically? How do you, it, it, what's the criteria in choosing the dog and what's the criteria in choosing the inmate or is it just mm -hmm. whoever signs up for it? Well, in the, uh, in the early days when we first started, we sent everybody into prison. So the worst of the worst dogs, because our trainers were so good that we were able to get some of our long-term incarcerated students um, trained up very quickly. So after our first 14 week long program, you know, we were just rapid fire every 14 weeks. We're graduating a class of 30 students. We're letting them re enlist. So some of our guys are in our program for years and years and years, they went through, through 10, 11, 12 rounds. They've saved tons of dogs. They, they are professional dog trainers. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning we sent in the worst of the worst. I mean, dogs that quite honestly, we should not have been sent yep, into prison yep, yep, yep. because there are, there are, a lot of different variables that you can't control when it comes to other individuals um, and these dogs. So we did have some some bites. We had some some things that were pretty tough, but we had sure. the we have insurance yep. and we have the support of the institution. Um, but for the most part, the dogs that we're sending in now are straight from the euthanasia list. So they're either dogs that are at our ranch. We have a 20 acre ranch right next door to Tachby State Prison. Wow. Literally, we share a border with them. Um, and, and it's, it's, we are sending in the neediest of the needy because young dogs are being euthanized at a, at a clip of about 40%. Yeah. So 40% of young, large dogs are being killed in our County. That's thousands and thousands and thousands a year at, at great cost to our County. So if, if we have any hope to get these dogs adopted, they have to have the skills to get adopted and stay adopted. So that's what positive change does. It's a it's a, a 14 week long program where we're adhering to the canine good citizen certification. So every week we're working on a different point of the CGC test. So we're going through basic obedience. Okay. We're going through a challenging group of steps to try to get to our end goal, which is canine good citizen certification and graduating the program. So there's socialization, there's mastering the walk, there's learning the, the three D's of dog training. There's learning um, all these different aspects of dog psychology that we're trying to convey. And the goal obviously is to help these dogs get adopted and stay sure. adopted, but it's also to provide much needed, like soft skills for our student inmates, as well as hard skills that they can take out into the world and find gainful employment right out of the gate to make sure they don't end up. And there's some sort of certificate that they get as well. I mean, you yeah. get it, you get to be mm -hmm. a certified dog trainer, then yep. you can, do you, do you have like a standard method methodology or do you feel like you got to, you, you, I mean, you got to see and know the dog, right? Yeah. And yeah. So, so most of us learn from, from Cesar Milan. So okay. I, I got a scholarship to, uh, Cesar gave me a scholarship for the dog psychology center and his training program in 2013, largely because of Hooch, the dog I'll, I'll tell you about okay. in a little bit. Okay. And, uh, and that was a dream come true, man. When I was sick in the hospital, uh, you know, I was in the hospital for six weeks and there was only two things on TV at late night. And that was yeah. Cesar Milan and Angels Baseball. Wow. And luckily I'm an Angels Baseball fan and I love Cesar Milan. Nice. And to to get to be with him essentially, you know, five years after I got out of the hospital and be spending weeks with him and and some of the best dog trainers on the planet at his ranch in, in Santa Clarita was was just incredible. So I kind of hunkered down into that group and all of us, all of our, our trainers met through that 
um, kind of core group of Caesar Milan and all the trainers associated with Caesar, you know, Colleen, Steve Del Salvio, whole whole bunch of incredible dog trainers that are not only because dog psychology is a little bit different. Dog psychology is teaching you that the energy that you have inside of you, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's tiredness, whether it's any number of things, it's this is what it starts with is you're channeling that energy down that leash like an umbilical cord. And you and if you don't come to grips precisely and honestly, rigorously honestly with what you're experiencing, you're going to be channeling negative energy down that leash and you're going to be doing a whole lot of wrong. And that's just that's the first step. That's yeah. the first thing you got to know before you even start. Yeah. So just learning how to breathe. Yeah. You know, learning we do a morning meditation over there and we did a, a pack walk where no one talks. And in that pack walk where no one's talking, we're all kind of breathing together. We're all observing our surroundings. We're plugging into the now. And that that's a big part of it. So the, the benefits of dog psychology are far beyond dog psychology. They benefit just every aspect of, of your transom, every part of you that you want to improve, that you want to get better, whether it's loving yourself, whether it's creating rules, boundaries, discipline, um, whether it's getting yourself to exercise. All of these things for me are... Um, um, are kind of conveyed through dog psychology. And what, when when uh, you think of like an example of just like a an unbelievable sort of like dog turnaround, I mean, because I, I really want to yeah. hear, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an incredible, we've talked about it before, but just th that you have this like interspecies love, you know, like you, you, you have these two species that just so totally yeah. fucking depend on each other. And yeah. we've had, I mean, we, you know, we've had guys talk about their lives being saved by dogs. I know I, I people saving dogs' lives and vice versa. I know. I mean, I, I got countless stories yeah. uh, uh, about the role that that dogs have played in 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 my life. But you know, I've I've also had my heart broken. You know, oh, I've, yeah. I've I've had my heart broken by so dogs. Times, you know, yeah. and and ones where you feel like mm -hmm. that 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 trust and that bond is really there. And 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 it's weird. It's it's. Um, you, you know, I, I, I've always forgiven every, every dog that's, that, that's, that's broken my heart. Yeah. Um, I, I, some, some people have a harder time with, with that. Um, what, what's the biggest kind of like turnaround story that, that, that pops into your head with a specific, with a specific dog? There's so, in prison specifically. Doesn't matter. I think that some of the most beautiful rehabilitation that I've witnessed between man and dog, man and mutt, if you will, has been in the positive change program because we've sent in some really broken dogs who did not trust people. One of them, Smokey. So I get a call from the animal control officer, the lead at the Mojave Animal Shelter. And she says, I got a dog for you. I really don't want to have to put him down. I've been pushing it off for three weeks. And she's the one that's got to stick the needle in. So, yeah, you know, she's kind of begging me to come out there and meet him. She sends me a picture. It's an adorable looking cattle dog, right? But he's got a scowl and a look yeah. in his eyes where I know this dude is off. <laughs> yeah, straight I up. know he is. He is. <laughs> yeah. Something is wrong with something. I don't want to say wrong, but yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's had some experiences in life that have set him back. <laughs> Straight up. Yeah. So I get out there to the kennel card and I get out there to his kennel and his kennel card says, hates people. That's just, <laughs> so the notes are just, it says he hates people. Right. I go, all right, well, what awesome. are we going to do with this yeah. here? Yeah. So I put a, you know, Caesar always teaches us no touch, no talk, no eye contact. So rather, because all of those things are pressure and this is a dog that doesn't need any pressure right now. So. Simply put a leash on him, turned and walked out, let him hop in the car himself. And I thought to myself, this, you know, this dog is going to need, if he has any hope at all to be adopted, because he'd already bitten several people. That's right. why he was there. Um, he, he needs to go into positive change and he needs to find someone who has a sixth sense about emotional connection and a sixth sense of uh, a, a almost superhuman ability to 
um, convey positive energy. And I knew just who that person was. And his name is Jason Morey. He is out of prison now. He's probably the best dog trainer in Orange County. Huh. And Jason Morey turned that dog around like you would not believe. We, we couldn't really have many people involved. Usually we have three students. We pair outside of their race. You know, California state prisons are extraordinarily segregated sure. racially. So we always have people of various racial backgrounds paired up on one dog. It's three students per dog. But with, and and is that, that's pretty singular for programs. I mean, is, is that uh, who, whose idea was that and, 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 and why do that? Well, we, we knew we kind of had to, especially because we were, we were teaching on, on maximum security prison yards where it was very, it was, um, the racial politics were, were very real. Yeah. And so the best way we could figure out how to, how to get everyone to get along and, and kind of team up over this, this greater good, uh, it was to, you know, pair them up together. That's great. And it really worked out well. For sure. It's, it's really, really been something special. Maybe we can expand on that Love later, to. but Jason, you know, and Jason, Jason Morey is a special human being. He is a guy that did a long time in prison. And um, once he found his natural ability to transmit positive energy into another human, in a, into another being, I think his life changed forever. And he knew exactly what he wanted to do because he turned that dog around like you would not believe. Hmm. And he knew exactly how to do it. Hmm. And um, he would just start out by saying, you know, my responsibility here is to is to let him know that I've got him, that no matter what, this dog knows that every step he takes, I have his back. I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. And he is breathing that into himself and he's sending it down that leash and he's doing it with his touch and he's doing it with how he, how he stands. There's something very impressive about the prison population and how they, how their body language is. Sure. Dogs pick up on body language. And Jason has this beautiful presence to himself. He has this, you know, this, this wonderful stance and he just conveys um, confidence and self-esteem and, and I got you. So this dog was scared of everything. The reason he bit so many things is not because he's aggressive. It's because he was scared. Sure. He was intimidated. He didn't sure. understand what was going on around him. Sure. So Jason started out for weeks with just, I got you just building him up with, I got you. And then from that point on, when that dog started to realize that things were, that things weren't as scary as he thought they were as most of as happens with most of us, um, he started to really become a dog and he started to wag his tail and he started to, to be extraordinarily affectionate and he started to deal with other students and he, he just truly rehabilitated. He changed that dog's entire life. And, um, I, I, I contend to this day that that only could have happened in prison, Yeah, you know, because the, the boundaries, the rules, the exercise, the discipline, the structure that we have in there is exactly what a dog need like that needs. Yeah. You know? Um, and yeah, so his family actually adopted Smokey. So when, when he got out of prison, Smokey was waiting for him. Oh, that's so and, cool, uh, man. Yeah. That's Smokey's so cool. passed away since, but yeah. uh, Jason's been training now for, I think, four years. Yeah. He's been a professional dog trainer. Yeah. And he's doing an incredible job. Uh, he's He, along with 25 other of our former students, are professional dog trainers. Wow. These are almost all long-term incarcerated, a lot of black and brown gang members, people that you would never expect to be involved in, in the, the pet industry sure. are not only involved in the pet industry, but are doing incredible, incredible work. Most of them working within the rescue system. Does the program take part in sort of in, in their parole and in, in, in yeah. their sort of plea? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and how, how does that work? Yeah. So to, for the most part, um, our students can re-enroll in the program as many times as they want, because that's something that we need because you're, you're, you are adding on to your skill set every round that you do. 
you know? So that's something that's very important to us to have a base so that we can re rehabilitate difficult dogs. But at some of our institutions, we're able to provide milestones. Milestones are considered by parole and probation, you know, for release. <clears throat> we write letters to uh, the parole board for our students, you know, talking about their, their the content of their character, how they've applied themselves in the program. Um, we don't have, I don't believe we have rat credits, but there's a variety of different, we are approved at an institutional level to help people get out of prison awesome. earlier because they are, what, what the parole board wants to see and what the prison system wants to see is that you are taking your time seriously and that you are working to rehabilitate yourself. There are very few programs in prison. It's very hard to do. Um, but, you know, positive change is an incredible commitment. It's, it's 14 weeks. We're only in there once a week. So we go in once a week for about four hours to train with our students. And the rest of the time, it's the mentor trainers and the lead trainers that are leading class to, to make things possible. But they're training 14 hours a day, seven days a week wow. for 14 weeks. Wow. So those dogs are all day long, all day long in the pod, on the yard. We usually have kind of an alcove that's connected. We usually go through the showers to get to a back area where, where we have like our kennels. But for the most part, the dogs are with a student all day long. The only time they're not is when they're sleeping or they're at chow. You know? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So they're working all day long. And not only have we helped a lot, I'll tell you a wonderful story. So I was on, um, we were pushing for criminal justice reform in Washington. Um, Congressman Kevin McCarthy is my congressman. He's always been extraordinarily support, supportive of the program. Um, which was unique from from the right because sure. what I'd always been taught is the, the right that's not somewhere you go. So when Kevin from day one, I mean I've known him since 2011, he's been supportive. You know, really trying to is help he a dog guy. Him. He is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he invited us out to Washington, and I didn't know what to expect. This is this is me and students. Yeah. So these are wow. formerly incarcerated students. Wow. And and Daniel had just gotten out of prison. Yeah. And so I'm there with Daniel, who was incarcerated at 17. Uh, Mr. Robinson, if you're out there, I love you. And uh, we, he gave us the Capitol Dome tour, wow. which only a handful of people get yeah. this tour. Yeah. And so we're standing on top of the Capitol Dome after getting this beautiful tour, walking up these old staircases. There's the graffiti in there from like the late 1800s. Mm. There's all this crazy stuff. And we get up to the top and Daniel's like, hey, man, you know, just kind of realizing uh, if I had to serve my max term, you know, I, I would still be in prison. But instead, you know, I, I was in the positive change program. And uh, I'm standing on top of the Capitol building. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. You know? So had it not been for positive change, he would still be in prison. And instead, he's standing on top of the Capitol with me looking out over the mall. Wow. You know? Wow. And, uh, he's a professional dog trainer also. He's wow. doing an incredible job. He's up there in, in our neck of the woods. And, and, and as far as the inmates, I mean, I imagine it's a it's a huge – I imagine a lot of people want to be – like how, how yeah. do you – is there is there criteria yeah. what you pick? Did, I mean, how does yeah. that work? Yeah, so that goes through the institution. You know, we build out an operational procedure – um, we build out that procedure to help us operate within a prison, but also to, in terms of the timeline, but also to figure out who, who we can accept in. So you have to have no violations. You have to have a relatively clean record for a year. So you can't have gotten in a fight. You can't have had any drug pops. Um, it's pretty strict to get in. You have to write an essay. Uh, we interview you. So we'll, we go into prison right before the round starts and interview all the new folks. And, and what are you um, looking for? I'm looking for a willingness to, to improve oneself, any bit of a willingness. Sometimes it's, you can barely see it. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes too, they're, um, outrageously nervous, uh, -huh. uh, cause they're sitting in front of the captain, usually the associate warden, myself and a couple of trainers. And until I stand up and give them a hug or something, yeah, yeah, they yeah. are, 
you're very nervous because yeah, it feels like judgment. It feels like they're not going to succeed, and yeah. they're used to 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 being let down to a certain degree or, or another. And um, we we pretty much let in anyone so long as your points are low, and so long as you you have somewhat of a willingness um, to improve yourself. You know, and, and we can see that like in the programs they're taking. Are they enrolled in AA, NA, sure. uh, alternatives to gangs? Are are they? In, you know, there's a lot of different programming that's mandatory. And is the majority of the the the, the people that enroll are, are are they were they dog people? Um, some of them were. Yeah, Jason was. You know, he 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 was like up, up until he got arrested. And he really continued that on and, and he really honored his dog's legacy, which is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Like he never forgot about his dogs that he had when he got arrested. Oh, that's cool. And he really honored them uh, in the work that he does now. So a lot of a, a, a surprising amount of our students um, haven't seen a dog in decades. Sure. So they may have been dog people, but they, they have had no interaction with a dog for a very long time. And because we're on level four, level three, we do have a level two program. You know, the majority of our guys have been locked up for a very long time. And a lot of them are life without the possibility of parole. A lot of them are 35 to life. They're looking and they're having to serve 85% of their sentence because yeah. of truth and sentencing. So there's a lot of guys who just simply haven't seen, haven't experienced um, what a dog is. But man, oh man, you want to see an instantaneous, prolific yeah, I was gonna exchange. Ask you. Yeah. Oh my God. It is, I feel so lucky that I get to bring dogs into prison <laughs> to, I mean, you can see, you can, I, I'll sit down, say you're a student that's interviewing for the program. I see a pain. I see a, a, a judgment. I see a, I see a wounded child, yeah. a very wounded child who needs some kind of connection to just feel like a little bit whole, a little bit like a human being, you know, and they've been just, they've been treated like animals usually just mm -hmm. by virtue mm -hmm. of being in there. And you put that dog in front of them mm -hmm. and, and everything changes, yes. everything changes yeah. instantaneously. Yeah. And there's this humanity that starts, there's a grin that ought, yeah. and that grin resembles a child's grin. Yeah, it's it's cool. always a childlike grin. It's not a normal smile. Right. It is, oh man, right, look what's right, going on. Right, it, it right, is this, right. And they start to make noises. Yeah. They start to make baby talking noises. Yeah. And they start to have vulnerability. Like yeah. I, I brought my girl Beta on a non-program day. So it was a Friday. They weren't expecting me to show up. You know, and I have a two-legged poodle who's my <laughs> little dog, Cora, with pink ears, and a golden retriever that I brought back from Beirut, Lebanon. And um Beta is trained to get into your essence when you get down on a knee. So she'll, you get down on a knee, she crawls up in you. And, and so I, I took her to, you know, I started out away from our housing unit and just started walking over with the dogs. And all of these guys came like filtered out of the housing unit and gathered around Beta and Cora. And these are all rival gang members. They're, yeah. they're different races and, yeah. and they're kind of looking over at each other like, yeah. We supposed to be doing this, right? Like, are we, right and right. they and they're all baby talking, and they're all just yeah. letting it happen. Yeah, and they, yeah. you know, they deserve that, man. They deserve to feel like human beings. Yeah. They deserve to have that childlike zeal. They deserve to have some hope. Yeah. And dogs, and they deserve to feel like one day they're gonna go home. Mm. And when you bring dogs into a prison, it brings home. Mm. It brings home there, and you and. And you see that realization. And I think it really does help them feel like they're one step closer to home, mm. which is why they apply themselves so much in the program because mm. they want to get home and they want to do better. But the rules that are set up in the prison system and the way the, the, the lack of programming that exists, it's extraordinarily hard to succeed. It's yeah. so hard to do good by yourself or by others within that rigid system. Yeah. You know, um, but in positive change, you have an opportunity to work on all those things. You have an opportunity to work on race relations. I mean, can you imagine being locked up for 30 years yeah. and 
really only interacting with your own race, right. how that's going to set you up for success on the outside. Right. So in positive change, you know, guys can say the word love. Guys can talk about their brothers outside of their race. Guys can work together outside of their race. Guys can, can, um, can make progress on one another and root one another on, create some sort of camaraderie and fellowship within that institution that that's outside of the other more, more negative structures. And I, I'm just, the thing I'm most proud about when it comes to positive change is it is an immensely positive force that sends just pulses of positivity out onto that yard. When our dogs are out on, on, on the prison yard, the whole yard feels it. Wow. The whole yard, you know, at Corcoran, at our level four program, there was so much respect for the dog program. They stopped selling drugs. That, wow. I mean, there was orders that came down where you're going to, hey, when the dogs are out there training, when the guys are out there, you know, no funny business. Keep it, you know, be respectful. So the guys with the keys were basically yeah. like, man, yeah, yeah cut cut that out. What, yeah. what, why? Because because they didn't want anything to get in the way of the program? Think, yeah, it was out of respect for the program. Yeah. They knew, too, that we were having a hard time with um, with some of the staff. And, and there wasn't a lot of – especially at Corcoran. Like, it, it, there was a few staff members. Shout out Bonita Weaver. Um, but there were a lot of others that did not want us there. And um, so they were trying to make sure that uh, – what, what would be the reason for not wanting you guys there? They viewed us as pro-inmate, and anything that is pro-inmate is anti-correctional officer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make that, we're trying to help infuse positivity, humanity, and 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 those those emotions and, and variables that are necessary for improvement, you know, and and that's what we're trying to do. And I think um, I think at the end of the day, a lot of the people on that yard saw that it was real positive for everybody. You know, and, a dog doesn't give two fucks about what race you are, whether you're an inmate or a guard, man. Like mm -hmm. a, a dog's going to love you no matter what. They yeah. don't care about your politics, don't care yeah. who you sleep with, what religion you are. Like dog doesn't give a shit about any of that exactly. stuff. And the, the little experience I've had mm -hmm. compared to your vast experience. But when you bring that kind of energy that you're not saying, hey, man, I'm here to yeah. take your side. I'm here to take your side. Mm -hmm. I'm just here, man. Yeah. And, and, and mm -hmm. you, you got a story I want to listen. Yeah. And I'm happy to tell you mine like yeah. that. That. That's, uh, I, I was really kind of blown away by that LWAP community at, at Calpatria and, and sort of the effect it's had on prison politics, especially in the race rela relations. Yeah. Do you feel your program has affected prison politics even when you guys aren't there? I mean, it's like once you forge those mm -hmm. relationships, it's not just that those relationships can kind of go down while you're there. They, yeah. they, they, they continue. Relationship yeah. is a relationship. Have I, you seen that? I really hope so. I, I believe so. Um, I mean, I'll never fully know, but I, I really believe that there's a, even if our program doesn't exist at that institution anymore, I think there's a lingering effect of positivity that's left behind. It's such a powerful positive streak when those dogs come through and, and when a program has been on it, it's such a positive impact in so many different ways um, that, that it can't help but but benefit those relationships in, sure. in a variety of different ways. Sure, you know? sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the violence is reduced, the drug dealing, drug overdoses, there have there's all these ancillary effects of having positive change on the yard there's you know if you it sounds weird to say that a dog program like fundamentally changes the culture of a prison yard but it does because there's never permission to go outside of these sort of like really rigid rules but but you have to make accommodations for a dog program you know dogs need to be walked they need to be let out they need to be walked around the yard there's going to be people you know so some of the some of these, I don't want to say the lines get blurred, but you just have a lot more social interaction outside of where people normally would. And, and it, it does form this camaraderie, this fellowship that doesn't just affect the guys that are in the dog program. It affects everybody, you know? And what's really interesting too, I had a guy come up to me. I was by myself. He had just transferred to North Kern. I was walking off the yard and he came up to me and 
And he just wanted to let me know that one of his buddies who was at our program at Wasco State Prison, that he was never the same after he took that program. So the guy recognized me. He'd just been, I never met this dude. And I'm not even at Wasco. I'm at North Kern. And, and he just wanted to let me know that his friend was like, was never the same in a positive way after taking the program. It's like, man, that's, that's something else. And the program is not at Wasco anymore, yeah. you know, but, but it still, it resonates in him. Yeah, it resonates in him to yeah. the point where he said something that meant enough to that dude to come yeah. tell you. Yeah, exactly. What, 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 what do you think? Like, I mean, it's just kind of general, uh, uh, but like, what do you think we can learn? Like, what, what, what do you think we in the, the outside world can, can learn from, from prison culture? We can learn what not to do through prison culture. I think there's a lot of things about prison culture. I don't know. I, I think this is hard. Is a hard question to answer for sure. I think, um, I think we've created a culture within the California prison system that is solely focused on survival, on trying to get through your, your term, trying to get through incarceration and trying to pr protect those who are close to you. And, um, it's pretty black and white in terms of, of that. And I think it's, I think the culture is very narrow. It's very rigid and it hasn't both sides sort of haven't allowed for, for growth. And, and some of the only ways you can allow for growth is to bring in programming from the outside and try to change the vibration of the institution. Mm. So I think, I think the vibration of prison culture, just the, the essence of it, it, it's a tough vibration. It really is. It's you feel it when you walk in there. I mean, you feel it in your chest, you feel it in your soul, you feel it when you walk out of there, you know, it, it stays with you. Um, and I can't imagine being incubated in that for yeah. decades, just yeah. incubated, just inundated with negative energy, negative energy. And so I, it's one of the things I wish we could change the most is, is prison culture. I, I really wish we could make more proactive moves to have programming be mandatory, a wide swath of programming that doesn't just come from NGOs and nonprofit organizations, but but you know, have resources within the prison system that are built up because, you know, the, the reason part of the reason we have 70 percent recidivism is because people are incubated in that culture. Right. And when they get out of prison, it's very hard to, to break out of that that experience and what sure. you've been what you've been taught and what you've learned for survival too. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you're adhering to these this structure and these rules for survival. You know, it's not it's not necessarily, you know, because you're making a, an emotional decision to you have to you have to be that way or you know, you're jeopardizing your life. And um, I, I, I have a tremendously big problem with the punitive approach that we take towards incarceration. You know, it has never worked. It's currently not working. And I think it's cruel and unusual. And I think that um, anytime 70% of your, your clients that being the incarcerated, you know, get out of prison and then end up back there, you know, you're doing something fundamentally wrong. Sure. And we need to, you know, tear it down and rebuild it. Um, I, I really feel that way because these are human beings, man. I have a, ever since having kids, I have a, a fundamentally different view about the incarcerated. I, I look at every single one of them as children of God, every single one of them. And I have a tremendous amount of love for them. And I have a, um, it, 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 it's not even unique. It's, it's obvious their potential and, and their, their morals, their ethics, their, their love, their compassion, their empathy, their, their, uh, they have so many incredible qualities you know, and, and they're very often not given a chance to to leverage those qualities, you know, because they're they're part of this this terrible system, terrible system. You, you know, one of the things I noticed too with 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 the LWAP community at Calpatria was just this uh, this unbelievable 
kind of uh, fluency and uh, familiarity and, and that they had lived so much sort of in their shame that they had that, that, that there's a lot of folks that I met, Brett May in particular, who who was so unbelievably in touch uh, with what he had done. He, he was so unbelievably in touch with the ripple effects of, of his crime and, mm. and, and, and his victim. Like if, if, if you could do it better, like what, what, what would you do? And, 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 and how do you honor victims? How do you honor, yeah, yeah. You, you know, like what, what, what would you do different? Well, there's a lot to say there. I, I, I think part of where you were going um, in terms of referencing the LWAP community is this, they have this it factor. There is something about people who have served a very long time in prison, who have focused on themselves, and there is a self-realization. There is a rigorous, they have done such rigorous inventories Crazy. on themselves totally. for years yeah. and years, and they have tried to evaluate, and um, they have broken down not only their, their crimes, their victims, but they have a, it's funny. I mean, I, I know a lot of spiritual people. I've met a lot of like exalted spiritual people, people who, who may understand spirituality, understand emotions, understand self-actualization and inspiration and moving forward in life. I've never met anyone or even close to it as deep as those who have served a long time in prison. Agreed. There is a resilience and a fortitude and a self-realization and a self-awareness that I've never seen and I may never see. I mean, these people have such a deep understanding of life of yeah. spirituality and and they have suffered like most of us can never imagine right. like like we can never imagine it in that suffering they have held on to something and persevered through it and come out of the other end better people can you imagine how hard it is to be in an environment like we just talked about where you're inundated with negativity for decades you can't escape it it is everywhere and you come out of the other end of that a better person yeah. Yeah. despite all of those variables, yeah. all of those factors that are trying to tear you down from every angle, yeah. whether it's not seeing your family, not seeing your kids, um, having violence be constantly around you, the threat of violence constantly around you, not able to sleep, not all of these different things. And yet they find a way or they're in administrative segregation. Some of these guys have been in ad seg for for years yep. and years where you're you know, your, your, your basic human needs are deprived from you. And yet they have found a way to persevere like Shaka Senghor, man, Shaka wrote a book. It's another guy I hope some of your your audience follows. What an incredible individual. I mean, I I I uh I think there ought to be a ther like a therapist program in the prison system. These guys have such a unique ability to and many of them have helped me get through my bullshit. Sure. The number of times, and I'm not even proud of this, the number of times I have brought my bullshit into prison um because I'm struggling through a divorce or I'm struggling through um self-love or I'm you know, I'm having a hard time feeling whatever those guys have been with me been there for me in a way that nobody else in my life has you know melvin jones one time when i when i first he was one of my students at north kern state prison and he he just got out of prison he's doing an incredible job also a professional dog trainer and he could just tell something was wrong with me man yeah and he put his arm around me again which we're not supposed to do yeah. black eye i'm a white guy right he doesn't care yeah and and walked me over to the corner and just let me know in a variety of ways you know that i'm going to be okay he let me know that I was going to be okay. He let me know how loved I was. He let me know the truth from fiction. And he he was able to jettison all the, this terrible uh, cycle of bullshit that I was trapped on. He was able to jettison that like instantaneously yeah. with his eye contact, with his body language, with the tone of his voice and, and, um, and communicating some of his own experiences for when he was really struggling. It made you feel better. Oh, in instantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Instantly made yeah. me feel better and, and made me feel a level of, of love and empathy 
So what is that? I mean, do you think that that's just like a clarity? You, you know, I mean, it's kind of what we talked about in the beginning is that there's something among some of these folks. And, you know, we, we you know, some of them are, 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 you know, almost like family members of mine, but dear friends of mine that have come on the, the, the podcast. But I saw it in Brett, right? You Like, yeah. you know, my friend Mel Chancy, you know, he, he was in prison a, long, prison a long time. He found himself there, really. And, and there's just this kind of um, absolute directness and, and uh, saying what you mean and meaning what you say. Mm-hmm and um no fat it's yeah. all trimmed off it's 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 and 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 honestly um not to be like a total cheese dick about this conversation but it's honestly that of a dog like yeah. a dog's never gonna lie to you yeah. a dog sees you is excited to see you mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah. and and it's like and and it's real and 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 i, I, I it, it's not um i'm not surprised yeah. that um the, the 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 this relationship when I know the power of this relationship how how much power that can have in an environment yeah like like prison yeah, there really isn't. They're not bloviating. They're not giving you a bunch of. They're not sprinkling a bunch of. Uh, you know, they're just giving it to you straight. Yeah, you know, completely. And it's. I have appreciated it so many times. You know, we were, uh, we had um, lost one of our students to overdose, Tootie, and uh, when Arturo died, it was, it was really hard. Like I had seen him two days before, gave him a big hug. I could tell something was wrong. And I didn't, I was, I was moving fast. We had class. It was late. And I, I'll probably never totally forgive myself for that. Cause I could tell something was wrong, but, but after he died, you know, that class came together and we sat outside in the backyard and we had the most intense conversation about recovery. The number of us that cried, the number of, I mean, in a, in a prison yard, in a level three prison yard, everybody got emotional. Everybody was connecting. They were there for each other. And we just went around, uh, you know, started with me and we just went around the whole group and everybody brought something. Everybody said, all right, this is our day to be vulnerable. Mm. I don't want to die like Tootie. I, I got to, we, we have to, we have to like take a minute to think about this as a group. Mm. Do we want to keep this program going? Because we, at, at the time we lost like 10 students to, to drugs either overdose or, or drug, you know, they had drugs in their cell or in their system. So it was a really tough time. And that might've been, that was probably one of the most prolific conversations I've ever had in my entire life because in part, because, you know, one of the things that the incarcerated have to offer is we think we're suffering out here. A lot of us think we're, we're and we are, we're, I mean, suffering is relative, you know, it, the, the toughest thing you've ever been through is the toughest thing you've sure, ever been through. Sure. Um, but these guys have, have persevered through things that most of us can't imagine. And they've done it time and time again. And um, listening to some of what they had to share is it's so profound and it lands so immediately. Like you said, just like, a, just like the, the love from a dog their the information and their experience, strength and hope has a, another level of impact for me. And, and uh, I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of it, mm. you know? It, um, it really is, like we were talking about earlier, it is the bone marrow of life. It is the realest, most intense um, experience to, uh, to get to listen and get to, to take part in some of what these guys share, you know? Man. Uh, and, and, and just maybe, uh, can you walk me through a little bit about just like your own, your own sort of history and how you ended up where, where, where you did? And um, I mean, were you always a dog guy? Yeah, man. I was always a dog guy, yeah. always an animal guy. I have uh never felt normal my whole life i have never been comfortable my whole life i never felt comfortable i mean it's strange because i i didn't think i would feel comfortable in this conversation 
I was nervous as fuck. For, for, to do this? Oh, for sure. Are you yeah. nervous now? No, I feel good. Oh, yeah. There's nothing to be fucking nervous you know? about, man. Yeah, yeah. Don't be nervous. But the, the narrative we tell ourselves. Yeah, and, yeah. and um, for me, I've always had a really hard time not just being okay with myself, but just being in my own skin. Um, and, and you know, some of that You has, felt that since you were a kid? Yeah. Uh-huh. Since I was... I have, a, I have a twin brother who I love very much, who loves me. You know, um, I came from a from a broken home, but it, it wasn't, you know... But I went through some things that, uh, you know, went through some 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 childhood sexual traumas as a kid that definitely um, didn't help. You know, that that instituted this uh, fear of of women. I had a very deep fear of of especially when intimacy was involved with with women. Um, And so for so and they would feel that awkwardness, you know, whenever there was intimacy with a with a from the moment I started to like girls that whatever, mm-hmm. eight or nine years old, it was so conflicting because I, I really liked girls, but I was also terrified of them. Because of things that happened to you as yeah. a kid. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But the dogs, man, that's where I could always feel comfortable and I could always feel seen and I could always feel like I was a, a leader. You know, I had my dog spec. I, I found him. I was walking home from Hermosa Valley school. I think I was six or seven and I found him curled up next to a storm drain. It was raining. And, uh, you know, called my mom and she came and picked us up in the minivan, threw the dog in the back. And then my dad said, you know, my dad lived in a different house and he said, yeah, that's, let's make him our dog. Okay. So that was my first, you know, rescue dog was, uh, was Specker. And that dog never left my side, man. I, I used to take him with my skateboard, my tennis racket. I didn't know the first thing about tennis, but there was a tennis court down the street <laughs> from my house. So I'd get my dad's tennis racket and kind of bring my dog with and my skateboard and just, and, and. We did that all the time. Had it, then we started to have rescue dogs in my mom's house in Hermosa Beach, and um, so yeah, dogs have always been always been part. My first experience, my first mental experience, the first thing I remember is getting bit in the ass by a dog, by a wolf dog that my, my mom's boyfriend had when oh, I was damn, three dude. or something like that. And yeah. it bit you? Yeah, right in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom remembers it very well. I I just remember like the the frequency of the experience yeah. because it was so intense. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of guys, to be honest with you, a whole bunch of our guys in, in the positive change program are scared of dogs. Yeah. Or they were apprehended by dogs. So their right. last experience is being Getting mauled by a canine. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? So yeah. so many guys and, and they'll uh, they'll join the program to like overcome that. Yeah. One of our guys, Vo, uh Vo's also a professional dog trainer, incredible guy. He rehabilitated Prada in there who was reactive. She yeah. the first thing she did was bit it was bite him. Wow. He was trying to get her out of the crate and uh just that experience of him having to get over that and, and fortify their relationship. He ended up adopting her too. his, his family. Uh, they still have Prada. And yeah, that was, that was my experience was, um, I think that might be, well, I, as long as I can remember, um, my calmest moments were, were, were cuddled up with my dog. Like the, the, the closest I've come to peace is, is cuddled up with my dog, like under my dad's pool table or, in my bedroom with my, my mom's dog. And those were the times where I felt where I didn't feel so out of place. Hmm. 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 And then, uh, and then getting, you know, growing up and getting older, um, what was your experience? And I mean, I'm just like interested in how yeah. you found yourself here. It's really interesting, man. It's a very awkward road to animal welfare. I, um, my, my best friends were all doing great, you know, professors or master's degrees. My twin brother's got a master's degree and I didn't have the first thing to show for myself except uh-huh. acute alcoholism and drug addiction. Got it. I was completely addicted to drugs and alcohol. Got it. And what, what, what kind of drugs? 
uh, well, alcohol, I got to the point where I was drinking 24 hours a day for, got it. for the, but, um, all kinds of drugs, cocaine, yeah. crack cocaine, never really got into heroin, but methamphetamine, mostly methamphetamine and cocaine. Got it. Um, and, um, so I started to volunteer for a variety of different organizations because I was a verifiable piece of shit. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be interacting with friends, we had a reunion coming up. I'm like, well, I got to have something to show for it. <laughs> you know? So when everyone's like, oh, well, I got my, my master's degree from yeah. Pepperdine, I'll be yeah. like, well, yeah. I've been volunteering for the Humane Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? so that I was just my, fuck on crack, but I was yeah. there. Yeah. It was totally yeah. selfish bullshit yeah. move where I'm yeah. like, I have to have some redeeming quality. Yeah. And so I'm going to start volunteering. And I knew it was good for dog, good with dogs. Yeah. And I just didn't want to, I just, I didn't want to be just a drug addict and alcoholic. I wanted to at least have something redeeming, hmm. you know? And so that's what I did. Started working with, uh, Kern County animal services, the Mojave animal shelter. Um, I started working with Tatchby humane society, um, helped them start their, their large dog foster program. And, uh, but at that time I was drinking, you know, 24 hours a day. Wow. I was, I got in a car accident in 2013, broke, broke my sternum and, and, and cracked my scapula and got knocked out. And, um, that experience of trying to heal from those injuries. Um, I didn't take pills. I never liked to take pills because of how it affected my drinking. And, and that experience, uh, is how I became a 24 hour a day drinker. So from 2003 to 2008, I drank 24 hours a day, wow. nonstop, you know, wow. uh, copious amounts of as much alcohol as I could consume. And my body was so, so good at, at processing it and, and uh, digesting it that I, I could somehow, you know, somewhat maintain, you know, and then, uh, in 2008, I got sick. Um, I knew I was getting sick in 2007, but I, I, I wasn't hundred percent sure. Um, when your kidneys and your liver start to fail, it's pretty obvious. You know, yeah, what you, happens? You turn yellow. Um, you turn yellow, you bruise real easily. So everything is bruising. You know, you're completely purple. Um, your stomach starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's called ascites. When, when your liver stops functioning, uh, blood and, and bile basically leak into your abdominal cavity because your liver's not processing it. So you get pregnant, you know, and then your belly button herniates. So, I mean, I, I had a, I had a, you know, I was nine months pregnant. Wow. It was a huge belly and my belly button was herniated like this. And I would tape my belly button to my stomach just so that it wouldn't be sticking out of my shirt just to try to, and I'd wear baggy shirts. So you couldn't see how yellow and long sleeve in the summertime, just so you couldn't see how yellow I was I'd wear sunglasses all the time. So you couldn't see how yellow my eyes were. And so the, the symptoms are pretty bad. And then you start to, you know, leak blood from, from both ends. So I was, I was leaking blood out the one end and, and not too generally concerned with that for whatever reason. But then once you start, you know, having blood come up out of your mouth, it's not a, it's not a good thing. So, you know, I, I, w I went into what's called end stage liver disease, end stage liver failure. It's not even called stage four, it's end, E-N-D. And um, I went into end stage failure. I tried to stay out of the hospital for as long as, I mean, I knew I was sick and, and I went to the hospital and had my blood drawn. I'll never forget the nurse sat down next to me and she kind of like put her hand on top of mine. And uh, she said, honey, um, you're in liver failure, okay? And you need to go to a hospital immediately because this is, this is really bad. And this is really, and I, I'm here for you. You know, she was trying to, and all I'm hearing is alcohol is no longer in my life. And I can't hear that. 
you know, I'm not going to hear that. I won't hear that because without alcohol, I'm dead. I mean, there's no reason for me to exist. I can't be myself. Um, I, I, there's no way I, I had tried to, to kick alcohol and, and I didn't want it. I didn't want that life. I needed alcohol in order to be myself. I was convinced, you know, and, um, did you have relationships at that point? I mean, did, 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 how were the relationships in your life at that point? Terrible. Yeah. Just awful. I had my dad. I had, I had friends that I worked with at the improv that I was close to, but I was, I was, you know, I was copiously consuming alcohol and drugs at all times. And I, I was probably still a decent friend in certain ways, but I was also isolated by that time I was back in Tehachapi. So I'm up in the mountains and there's not a lot of people nearby, not a lot of friends that can help out. And um, so, yeah, I ended up, you know, I ended up having to go, I checked myself into the hospital with my dad and, you know, I'll never forget it. Dr. Aziz came out and, you know, he sat my dad down. I was in a hospital bed and he, he, he sat him down and he said, look, you know, your son's in, your son needs a liver transplant and he's not going to get one. And so this is our reality. You know, he is dying of liver failure. Mm. Um, he's got less than 90 days to live. And, um, the only chance he has to live is a liver transplant. And, you need six months of sobriety to even be considered. I hadn't had six hours of sobriety, wow. much less six months. And um, based on my MELD score, which is my model for end-stage liver disease score, you, you basically, the, the score determines how sick you are. It also determines your eligibility for transplant. I was as sick as you can be. And my MELD score was, was 26 and a half. Um, but there was no chance for me to get a liver transplant. You needed that sobriety in order to just the base minimal qualification. And... Um, you know, everything was failing on me, my pancreas, my kidneys. When I checked into the hospital, I, my, I had severe kidney issues. So I, and then I was going through withdrawal. So I don't remember the first three days, uh, three and a half days of hospitalization. I, um, and, uh, yeah, I was at a hospital that didn't do liver transplant. You know, the only hospitals in California that did transplant were, there were seven of them. Cedars is one of them. It's where I was born. So the goal was to try to figure out how to get to a hospital that did liver transplant, but, I couldn't get accepted to any of the programs. I'm not sober six months. So again, they're just keeping an eye on me. They're feeding me Dilaudid and morphine. I got addicted to drugs the fucking week, the first week I was there. And, and then every three hours, I knew that I was going to get a shot of dope. And I would let that nurse know two and a half hours in, girl, you better get that syringe ready. Like yeah. I became addicted to, to Dilaudid so quickly in that hospital setting. And, and back then everything was about pain management too. So I don't know if you remember the, like the smiley face pain thing. Yeah, the, the like, chart. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you got the smiley face, you're all right. Straight face, eh. frowny face, you're struggling. Frowny crying face, yeah. get this guy some drugs. Yeah. So I was frowny crying face yeah. the, the whole six weeks I was there. And it was just, it was a, it was a really, really dark time, man. It was, um, it was something else. Like, you know, this is, this is my 15th sober birthday today. Good for you, and, man. Uh, Happy birthday, bro. I was thinking about it. Thanks, bro. I was thinking about it on the way over here and it almost feels like at times that it happened to somebody else, you know, mm. cause it was so, it was such an acute amount of suffering and it was so hopeless and it was such a, a strange dark time. And, uh, but it's also like a really, really beautiful story, you know, because, um, you know, it's the, it's the story of, a of a dad that just refused to give up on his kid, you know? I, uh, my dad was there <clears throat> every day and I was such a piece of shit while I was in there. Cause I'm just looking for dope the whole time, you know, and I was miserable. I was, 
you know, at that point I was 140 pounds. I was completely yellow, totally. I looked like the sickest sick person you've ever seen in your life. You know, I had a catheter in my back that was draining my ascites. It's, it's called paracentesis. So I just have, I'm filled with liquid and I'm, and I have ammonia on my brain. So I'm not making any sense. I don't know what day it is. I'm, I'm vacillating between like coherent and completely incoherent and violent. You know, they gave me a, a lady who, the, who had to follow me. I was a liability in there, you know? So they gave me a, she had to, the last two weeks, she, she didn't leave my side. She was with me every second of every day to make sure I didn't hurt myself or somebody else, you know? And, and there was no hope of getting a transplant, nothing, you know? And, but my dad, who was, who was an aeronautical engineer and, you know, engineers see a problem and they, and they try to fix it. They try to get to the bottom of it. And that's what he did. He was just not going to fucking hear no. He was not going to hear no. Bless him. And they're trying to explain to him, look, sir, you know, he he will not get into this program because he doesn't have the required sobriety. His MELD score is plenty high enough. He's sick enough, but we, I'm sorry, but we can't waste a liver transplant on you. And I had a twin brother. So maybe what about my twin brother giving me a partial love transplant? Well, because of his drinking patterns, we can't give you his partial love transplant because then he might need one. So all, all bets are off. You got no hope. So then the last you know, two weeks were just talking about trying to get me home on hospice care. It was just trying to wow. get me out of the hospital because they were tired of paying for it. You know, it's a long time to be in How a hospital. How old are you then? I was 28. Wow. Yeah, I went into liver failure at 28. And uh, and then by the grace of dog or God or whatever you choose to call the power greater than yourself, we got this, this meeting, this insurance, this nurse called from UCLA. My dad has been on the phone nonstop, by the way. He's just trying to figure out. He'll... He's damn near close to, to murdering someone on the side of the street and stealing their, liver, their liver out, you know, yeah, yeah. and, uh, Shit. and he got a meeting with, uh, I, I think I remember it somewhat clearly, but he basically said, we need to get to Cedars now. They're going to see you. So the comprehensive transplant program is going to meet with you to see if they'll admit you to the program, which is like outside of protocol. And so my dad tells the doctors, Hey, we got a meeting at Cedars where we're leaving this hospital immediately. And they go, no, you're not, you know, this, you take this kid out of the hospital, he's going to die for one and two, like you're ne they're never going to let you into that program. So you, you take him out of here, bring him home for hospice care. Cause you're not coming back. So my dad said, fuck you. That's exactly what we're doing. I'm taking him to where he's going to get the care he needs. And he signed me out against doctor's orders. And, um, my mom ended up driving me down there with my dad following. I remember thinking, uh, my mom was going to kill me just cause she's not the greatest driver. And she's going a hundred miles on the hundred miles an hour on the 14 freeway. Um, but, uh, we got admitted to that program man. I sat down with Dr. Tram Tran and her entire transplant team at Cedar Sinai. And, and that's where, I, like I said, that's where I was born, you know? Um, and she said, look, um, we're going to admit you to the comprehensive transplant program. Um, if we check you into this hospital, you will not leave here. You're not going to want to hear this, but you know, we admitted you and then we immediately checked you out. So you're going home and you need to stay near an emergency room because you're going to kick and uh, it's not going to be fun and you're very fragile. So again, if we leave you here, you will die here. So um, if you can get six months sobriety, you will get your liver transplant. So we're sending you home again, stay near an emergency room. Um, and we're going to check in with you every day. So every day you need to, basically send us your blood pressure, your, your vital readings. And, um, and that's what we did. And so we left that hospital and I'm laying down in the back. I couldn't even sit up in the chair because the lateral G's when you 
turn in a car and you have ascites, it's so painful. So I'm laying down in the back seat and my dad's driving home going, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my son who is in acute liver failure at home? You know, how am I going to take care of him? He's been in a hospital setting. What am I going to do? Right. You know, and, and, um, but that's the only choice we had if we, if we wanted to, wanted to survive. And again, we had to get those six months of sobriety. Once we got six months, I could qualify and I would get my transplant. So the clock, you know, the clock was ticking and, um, I, of course, you know, as a, any good drug addict does, I got my dad to take me to the hospital for, for shots of dope. You know, I was struggling. I'd never been through opiate withdrawal yeah. and I was hurting, man. Yeah. Really, really, really hurting. Yeah. And so I would get him to take me and, and get me through the emergency room. I'd get a shot of Dilaudid or a shot of morphine or a shot of that. And, um, and that went on for, for a couple of weeks until finally, you know, my dad's like, it was not happening anymore. And, and I had to kick and, um, you know, I had my Marley with me. Who's like, you're big, you're big kiddo. And, and the opiate withdrawal was one of the worst things I've ever been through. Cause I was so fragile. You know, I was leaking blood from, from both ends as it was. And when you're going through those convulsions and I was seeing things and I was hearing things, I didn't sleep for like four or five days, like mm -hmm. not a wink. So, but if I didn't have that dog, I mean, I was so suicide would have been a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was so checked out emotionally like i couldn't handle what was happening i mean I, I i a lot of people try to talk about like the the their fortitude or their like i i reflect on my recovery those early days it was not pretty man there was nothing heroic right there was no like i was a groveling little child mm. who was really really struggling and didn't know the first thing mm. on how to and if i didn't have that dog mm. to lend me his strength and mm. and just let me know hey because he was real mm. if i as soon as i put my hand on right. that big on that big boy, I could yeah. feel like what was real. Yeah. And I just remember going, feeling his chest go up and down with him yeah. next to me, just going, oh, and I was so scared. Like every ex exhale was like, like oh. that for like days. Yeah. And I would just feel that dog and God damn, when it was over, you know, that was, that, that was like miracle number one for me. It was just getting through that, that opiate withdrawal. And, and um, yeah, I just got to the point, you know, r right around at that time, you know, I had, um, I had shit the bed quite literally. I, yeah. I had gone to the bathroom in bed and usually my dad helped me out when that happened. And I, um, I walked into the bathroom to clean myself off, you know, and, and I, I looked at myself and, uh, dude, I'll never forget this. There was, um, a full length mirror in my downstairs bathroom. And so I'm completely naked and I'm walking into the bathroom and I start, it's like three in the morning, you know, and I'm staring at myself. And I can't make out my eyes. Like I can't make out who I am. It doesn't look like me. Not, not just that the rest, but like my eyes don't look like me. Like the one thing you think you'll never lose, yeah. that's gone. Yeah. And I'm hollowed out, scared shitless. I'm not here anymore. So at that point I'm like, okay, that was your blessing to take your life. Like when you, when you cease to recognize yourself yeah. at all, then you're just not in there and you're just overcome by fear. You know, for me, it just felt like a, like that was my, my blessing to, to go ahead and check out, you know? And uh, looked down at all my dogs. They were all lined up next to the toilet because uh, I had spent a lot of time on the toilet. And they're all looking up at me, Tug, Marley, and Buddy, like everything is perfect. Like they got their man home. I've just given myself permission to kill myself. Yeah. And, and they're just love bolt, just love bolts coming out of their eyes and yeah. they're all just wiggling, yeah. you know, look, just so happy to have yeah. that home. So happy to have me home. Yeah. So there's this existential crisis of well, jesus christ well, well, you know 
if something happens to me, what happens to my dogs? Yeah. You know? And also there was just this, this idea of who cares what you look like. You're in there. Who gives a shit that you're yellow and swollen yeah. and purple yeah. and you're in there and they see you in there and they yeah. recognize your spirit. Your essence is in there. That person that you always knew you were, all of that potential, that humanity, yeah. that, that uh, vulnerability, that love that you have for other people, that, that, that empathy and compassion that I knew I always had, that I, I knew I could always leverage. They saw it and they knew it was there mm. and they just let me know you're going to fucking be okay wow. and we're going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay. And I did not feel like we were going to be okay. I had never been so scared my entire life, man. Like when you, when you know you're going to die and it's like this slow process, it's so, it's so difficult mentally to not just leave, to not just want to leave. You know, I'd sit there like the only time I felt productive, I would literally sit there with my dad's nine millimeter and just holding it, thinking about suicide was the closest I felt to being proactive. You know, because if I could at least do that, then then I would be doing something proactive to help my family, which is like, get me, I'm this scourge to all of their existence. I could at least leave, you know. Um, but man, when those dogs, there's something about it. And I went from, ab like, I could not have been any lower to, I just, it started with just a glimmer of hope. Like, after that experience, I had a glimmer of hope. And I, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to start taking some direction and that we didn't go to bed that night. I just journaled for the rest of the night, writing about what I was actually feeling, actually feeling, which is mostly self-hatred, you know, and things I had done and things like that, almost like an inventory before I knew what an inventory was. And then that morning we, we just went for a walk. I couldn't get very far. I was like very, very ill, but we just put one foot in front of the other and went down the driveway. And we live in the beautiful Tehachapi mountains. And, um, I did that several times a day, every day for six months. And all I did from that point on was write and focus on dogs. And it started with my pack after week one, after I shook off the, the opiate withdrawal and after I started to get my balance and I was on some medication that helped me with the ammonia buildup on my brain. Um, I started to add dogs into my pack. I started to work with, you know, I got back with the humane society and, and, and a couple of other local groups, canine Canyon ranch and, she said, yeah, Leslie said, yeah, I'll give you some, I'll give you a foster dog, you know? And then one foster dog became two, became three. And, and, and this whole time as the days and then the weeks start to go by, I'm getting better. I'm getting, I'm getting better. Like not only did the ammonia work its way off my brain, but I could, I could, I was starting to get physically better. You know, my ascites started to, to reduce and I started to be able to have some, I mean, I was so weak when you're in a hospital bed for that long, like you, your muscles get atrophied sure. and and just this process of walking, I started to, I started to receive love. I started to give love. I started to recognize my surroundings. I started to recognize a divinity around me in all things. I started to recognize this, 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 this incredible connection I had with my dogs. And then we started to run into people, situations that I wanted to stay away from. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to, I am so scared to death of people but we started to have these magical experiences with, with, with people we'd start to meet on our walks. I met this guy when it was like, I think it was like week two into our walks and it was very cold. And when you're in liver failure, you're very sensitive to temperature. And I'm walk, I have Marley and tug, no leash. Cause I can't hold their leashes cause they'll pull me over. So luckily they're good with recall. Marley was most of the time, but it's six in the morning. So I'm not really worried. Yeah. And I see, 
this figure coming up with the sun rising behind him. I go, oh, Jesus, that's a bear. This is not going to be good. <laughs> you know, Marley's going to take right off after him. And this yeah. is going to be it. Because we we live in bear country, you know, and and it's not a bear. It's a little man with a parka on. And he's kind of coming over the top of the hill. And we come up to this guy. And uh, his name is Wen. Like, ironically enough, his name is is uh, is Wendell. And when becomes my walking partner. Well, that day he looks at me. He doesn't ask anything about my illness. Like, why do you look so sick? What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just wants to know about the dogs. Yeah. So um, doesn't. And for the first three walks we did, he never asked me anything about me. He wouldn't feel sorry for me. <laughs> I really needed people to feel sorry for me. Yeah. That's like all I got. Yeah. At yeah. some point when you're in, in like that low in recovery, you, you, you just desperately want people to feel sorry for you or empathize with you. And yeah. he didn't care. And, and Wendell we started to do that walk every morning and, and Wendell showed me the way, man. He, uh, he's talking to me about his life. I said, so what are you doing out here, man? What are you, this is bear country You're out here by yourself at 6am. This is not smart. He goes, well, you know, I used to do this walk every single morning with my wife and, uh, you know, she passed away last week hmm. and, uh, his wife of 30 years, they'd done that walk every single morning. And this hmm. is the first time he's doing that walk without her. Wow. And so here I am feeling sorry for myself in every single possible fucking yeah, way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this guy has just lost wow. the thing he cares about the most. And his fucking chin is up, his shoulders are back. And he's having that morning walk regardless. And, uh, and he ended up, he ended up selling his house, buying an RV and, and slanging senior vitamins at old people homes, found a hottie <laughs> nurse at one of these places, ended up getting married again. Wow. And he, he passed away like, like five or six years ago. Wow. But, uh, you know, like what face. an incredible, what an incredible like gift he was to me again, yeah. just plopped out of the sky. Wow. This, you know, in the middle of the Tehachapi mountains, this random yeah. guy. But, um, that was kind of the mission. It was very simple is I could not live for myself. I didn't have the first idea how to put one foot in front of the other scared of absolutely everything. But if I had my dogs with me, I was fairly confident that it wasn't going to kill me and I could get through it. And, and, then, and then you build, you start to build momentum and you start to get self-esteem. Self-esteem is a big one. That's what those dogs gave me. They, I started to see in myself what they were seeing after a period of time. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we, we, uh, we had a really interesting experience with, with the process of animal rescue because I'm bringing these dogs into my pack. I'm rehabilitating these dogs on these walks. I started to take their pictures. This is before social media, you know, so I'm taking their their pictures, I'm writing their stories and they've all been, cause they all come from the shelter. So they've all been locked up. So their stories are, I make up stories about why they were incarcerated, you know, like, so, so, you know, bubbles here was locked up for peeing in public or disorderly conduct <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or like fighting it, whatever. Yeah. And so I started to have, I started to find a creative outlet, yeah. you know, by taking pictures of these dogs in the beautiful Tehachapi mountains with my pack. And I started to apply what I had learned from Cesar Milan on TV. And, and then obviously I got to revisit that later in life, but, um, I just started to have all of this, this progress. I started to get physically just a little bit better and a little bit better. And what people don't realize is that liver failure is, is reversible. That's a, that's a, that's a bold statement, but the system as it exists now, doesn't try to, to deal with liver failure, um, like it can. And so I, you know, the only things I did to better myself was no alcohol, no drugs, period, obviously, and, um, moving my body. And, you know, I changed everything I put inside of my body. So no salt, a lot of fiber, um, you know, no complex carbohydrates. I just radically altered what went in my body. And 
by the time I got six months of sobriety, by virtue of walking in the mountains with those dogs and sleeping with my dogs and surrounding myself with that loving energy, by the time I got six months of sobriety, I, I no longer needed a liver transplant. For real. Yeah. Holy shit. And so to this day, currently, right right now, as I sit here, I have what's called stage three fibrosis. So I no longer have, I don't even have cirrhosis of the liver anymore. My body, obviously a big part of this is because I'm, I was 28 when I got sick. So I was, I was young enough and my body was resilient enough to get better. But um, it's possible. It is really possible. You know, taking care of your body physically, changing what you put inside of it, finding a God of your understanding to help you communicate with yourself. You know, the, the miracles, that's this, that's what miracles are made of. You know yeah. what I mean? And, um, I, I still, uh, I still, I'm still a member of the comprehensive transplant program. Once you're entered into that program, you're a member for life, you know, because you, you usually either die or you get a liver transplant. And, um, we're now, there's a few of us that are part of this study, which is designed to essentially, um, there's not many of us who have reversed cirrhosis of end stage cirrhosis and got better. So we're part of a study at Cedars that kind of follows us around. You know, my, I take a variety of different extra tests and blood tests that are, that are, that are part of this study. And hopefully the, you know, what I've been through and, and the resilience of that my body was able to attain, um, will go on to help some other people, but wow. You know, is, is your, uh, is your old man still around? Yeah. What, like, what does he say about all this? He must oh, be man. so happy. Yeah. My dad, um, you know, fuck, man. My, I have put my dad through more. I have put my dad through more pain and suffering than, than any parent should go through. Yeah. And I know every, I know the feeling, you know, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we, we had a really great talk the other night, but um, my old man is doing great. He's still working, he's uh, 77 years old. And, um, I think it was the most difficult thing he's ever been through. I think there is a le a level of pain and suffering and hurt that I don't know he'll ever fully get over, but he loves me so much that he, um, he lets himself cope with it. I think if he's honest with himself, he still has some resentments towards me for what that experience was. Cause it was years, mm -hmm. you know, years and years, not just the process of getting better, but leading up to liver failure, sure, sure. you know, it was a lot of, um, really bad experiences. Um, but he, uh, he did it, you know, I, I know that I had a, a part to do with it and so did my dogs, but if my dad hadn't have been leading that charge and hadn't been, um, you know, hadn't just had this, this blinding love for me, uh, to, to, by any means necessary. What does that teach you as a parent? Oh man. And, and I, I should also point out my dad didn't have a dad. My dad's dad died of liver failure. Wow. You know, it's like that Simon and Garfunkel song. He's a, he's a rock. He's kind of an Island. But he's, but he's, he's very social and he's, a, he's, he's, he's the most wonderful person I've ever met. Mm. You know, he really is. Um, actually, let me share this with you. It's kind of interesting. So one of the things I sort of left out is, um, when I got out of the hospital, my dad was carrying on me hand and foot. Like I said, I, I was going to the bathroom on myself all the time. I was very, very ill and he didn't know the first thing or what to do to take care of me, but he was doing his best. So for the first month, he never left. You just hand, hand, you know, waiting on me hand and foot. Um, he had to go to work. He had to make some money. So he went to Brazil, to Brasilia, to the capital for literally two and a half days where he was staying only there only one night and turning all the way back around and coming back as quickly as possible because he knew leaving me alone was dangerous. Sure. So what did I do? 
and all my wisdom, again, I'd been out of the hospital for about a month. I, uh, I drank again. I found the backup car keys in my dad's truck. I drove to the hospital, to the hospital, to the liquor store and I bought a double bottle of wine. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm just going to, I'm just going to taste it because I hadn't slept on a really hard time. I'm just going to, I'm in liver failure. There's no way I'm going to drink this, right? I'm just, I'll just take, I just taste it and then I'll get some sleep tonight and like, you know, and, uh, I don't remember anything past the first sip. I blacked out. Uh, I woke up two days later and I wasn't a real blackout person necessarily. Of course I did, but that wasn't. And I woke up two days later, there was a box of wine. There was a couple of, I'd obviously gone to the store multiple times. I also was still very yellow. I was as sick like how they ever sold alcohol to me was <laughs> yeah, shocking. Yeah. So I, I wake up like four hours before my dad's home and uh, I gather up all the bottles. I, I couldn't throw them in the trash. I was afraid he'd find them. So I put them in the attic and um, I was very ill. You know, I immediately was, was vomiting blood and shitting blood, you know, in, in large quantities. So I knew I had to go to the hospital and my stomach was filling back up. And uh, so I went over there and, to my dad's office. He had just sat back down from getting home from this trip. And I said, um, Hey dad, you know, we, uh, we got to go to the hospital. And he goes, you know, he's half paying attention to me. Like, what are you talking about? Said, hey, you know, we, we got to go to the hospital, you know? And, uh, again, it didn't set in. I, said, I took off my glasses so he could see how yellow my eyes were. And I said, look, man, I drank again. We need to go to the hospital. You know, I'm, I'm not doing okay. And he just, I never seen my dad cry. Like, like he just burst into tears and he just kept repeating. You've killed yourself. He just kept going. You've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. You've killed. And he was like half weeping. He was like, just, you've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. And he, he basically said, fuck you. I'm not taking you to the hospital. Mm. <laughs> he said, like, he, he threw in the towel. He said, I've had enough, you know? And, um, he drove me to the hospital anyway. And they took care of me there. And I came back that night. And, um, that next morning, again, I was back to those suicidal thoughts. I went into my dad's bedroom and I was going through my grandma's shoe boxes, just her belongings. So at this point, my dad's, at, you know, at work, I'm just, I'm messing through boxes, just looking at shit, you know, and I find this book and I kind of know what it is because I've been going to meetings. It was mandatory that I go to meetings every day. I had to fax them as part of like, I was there on a liver card. I needed a liver transplant. So I had to get signed that I was going to meetings every day. And so I, I knew what this was, but it didn't look the same. And and so I opened it and, uh, I didn't know anything about my grandfather. I, I know nothing about my dad's dad. My dad's dad was somebody you didn't bring up. You know, his name was Kermit Alden Scow. And all I know is that he died of alcoholism when my dad was a kid, that my dad didn't cry when he found out was dead. He didn't go to his funeral. And that he wasn't a good guy. You know, he told me some really terrible stories about him. We just didn't bring him up much, you know. And uh, I open this thing up and I see, you know, my grandfather's social security card, Kermit Alden Scow. I'm like, holy shit. This is my grandfather's 24-hour-a-day book from Alcoholics Anonymous. The Whoa. same book that I was given a month prior when I started going to meetings. Whoa. I go, holy shit. And it's sitting on top of the, this, like a bunch of scarves my grandma had. So, and a bunch of letters from him when he was at a recovery facility in Bellflower. Whoa. And so I'm looking through this thing and I find a, another piece of paper that I ended up taking to a meeting that night. And it says, uh, it says Friedman and there's a number 
Kermit Scow Cadillac. And I asked my sponsor, I go, what is, what is all this? And he goes, well, Friedman was his sponsor. That was his phone number. Uh, and that's the 730 men's stag meeting on Cadillac street in downtown Los Angeles. Whoa. He knew exactly what it was. Whoa. I go, what the fuck, man? So I walk Whoa. into the, into the living room and I go to show my dad and, uh, you know, you can see there's a ribbon here. It's marked. And so I, my dad's sitting down. And again, my dad does not talk about his dad. And I hand it to him. And I go, hey, man, I just found your dad's 24-hour day book. And he starts flipping through it. And he goes, uh, it's marked. And yeah, he goes. And he kind of like takes a breath. He goes, it's marked July 3rd. I go, yeah, what's that? He goes, that's the day the son of a bitch died. So my grandfather, who died of liver failure, was reading this book July 3rd, the day he died, hasn't been open since his grandson who's dying of liver failure opens this fucking thing and finds it. And this has been like my prized possession ever since. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I took it to a meeting that day and I, I dropped it down and kind of explained it and everybody in there got like the, the, the heebie jeebies, got the, yeah, the good heebie jeebies, you know? Wow, man. Yeah. And so what it ended up doing for me is, is really remarkable. Like I, you know, I don't know what you're, like how you grew up religiously, but I grew up, my, my mom's family were communists. They were labor organizers and protesters and, and marchers and, and radicals. My, my mom's side of the family are radicals and they are socialists and communists. That's wow. how I was raised. Like that was my hero, my grandfather. So I was very proudly agnostic, you know, even atheist, you know, I was very folk. I, I didn't understand god i didn't understand the need for god i didn't understand religiosity at all and I, and I very much condemned it for for how i saw it manifesting in the world but what this gave me permission to do was work on a god of my understanding was to work on this incredible miracle that just happened for me this you know finding this book and feeling the energy of this situation and feeling tactily feeling this card and what it what it what it courses through my body and the same things i was experiencing on these walks with the dogs and the and the love that was coming you know yeah. it it started to give me this permission to investigate a god of my understanding and so i used to sit at nighttime and i do my meditations and i would just pray to him you know i was going to meetings and they were telling me you need a god of your understanding i didn't know how to do that I, and i felt ridiculous trying to have a God of my understanding. It just felt fake. But then I had this happen to me. Then I could, I could pray to my grandfather. I could talk to him wow. and that, that permission, just letting me do that changed my whole life. Wow, man. You know, and I still, you know, when I get away from it, that's why I was so happy to, to get to do it today because, you know, I haven't, I haven't told this story in a long time. And being that, you know, today I'm 15. I'm like, man, I can't wait to share this with John. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm really great. You know, I, I mean, look, I, again, not to be a total weirdo, but, you know, uh, July 3rd is, is uh, that's a super important day for, for me too, man. It's is the, it really? Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, last time I committed a, a violent crime was on July 3rd, 2009. That was the day that mm -hmm. I, I, I walked away from drinking as well. Is it really? Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, and it was actually because of my dogs, man. Yeah, I know the story. Yeah, that yeah. was July third, two thousand nine. No way. Yeah, yeah. But wow. it, when you said that date, I was like, "Fuck, that's, wow, that's nuts." That's crazy, man. That's really yeah. neat. Yeah. I know exactly where I was, July third, two thousand nine. Is that right? Yeah, I was at his gravesite at uh, Wow Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery. Wow, that was the first time I visited him. Wow, yeah. wow, on He's, July third, two thousand nine. Yeah, because wow. yeah, that's when he died. Fuck, man. Yeah. So yeah, if you've ever been there, man, Fort Rosecrans, the National Cemetery in San Diego. Oh yeah. my God. 
It's one of the most beautiful places you'll ever visit. It is hauntingly beautiful. Wow. Such an incredible place. Yeah. What's your most like magical dog story? Like what, like, like when I say like magical dog story, like what's something that's sort of like inexplicable when a dog has just like totally surprised you or, 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 or shocked you, or you didn't, they showed yeah. you that there's a force to them that you didn't think was possible. Yeah. I think so this boy right here, uh -huh. you know, I brought these for your kiddos and uh, this dog is Hooch and we got a call from Hooch has a really interesting story. We got a call from the Bakersfield animal care center that they had a French Mastiff with a potentially broken jaw, broken tail, broken toes, um, who also had pneumonia. It was very sick. And, and we were the big dog rescue. So would we consider rescuing Hooch? So I went down there and that's all they told us. They didn't say he had anything else wrong with him. And so we went down there, um, rescued him, put him in the back of my car, took him to the hospital and they went to x-ray him. And when you x-ray, you know, you have the intubation tube, you, you move the tongue aside to get the intubation tube in and there is no tongue, you know, so his tongue had been completely severed. It was completely gone. And here you have this, you know, what should have been a 95 pound dog. He was probably 70 pounds at the mm. time. So he's very skinny. Um, and, and, you know, I've never heard that particular veterinary technician I knew very well. And, and we'd sent her, you know, gunshots, stabbings, burn dogs. She'd seen it all. I'd never heard her react like that. Hmm. You know, when, when you look into a dog's mouth and you see that, that their tongue is gone, they can't drink, they can't eat, they can't regulate their body temperature. Like that is a gruesome injury to have. What you know? would, would it happen? We weren't sure if it had been cut out, if it had been ripped out. Um, but it was obviously from a fight. It was obviously an injury that was sustained by a person or by a dog. I, I have to assume all these years later, because we've had several of them now that it was pulled out in a, in a dog on dog fight. Dog fight yeah. Yeah. Cause his ears had just been cut off though too. That was what was tough is his ears were freshly mutilated. Like they weren't trimmed. They were just, you know, with a razor blade, like butchered off. Um, so he, he'd very clearly been through a, a horrifically traumatic experience. And then we have to make this awful decision of, do we euthanize him? You know? And doctor says, all right, we're going to, we're going to have an intubate. We're going to put a tube, an esophageal feeding tube in his neck so we can at least get him water and get him gruel, get him some soft food and, and shove it in there and we'll keep him alive for the time being, but we can't do this forever. Right. And then immediately people on social media started giving us a hard time saying, you know, you're doing this for, for Facebook likes and you need to put that poor animal down. He's suffering. He's struggling. And he really wasn't suffering. He had his tube in. He was, he was all right. And we spent all this time trying to figure out, man, what do we do, man? What do we do with Hooch? And, uh, finally one day at the hospital, he started to drink out of the mop bucket. Like there was a mop bucket in there and it's elevated. So he started sticking his face in it and kind of drinking like a horse. So they quickly realized, Hey shit, maybe he can actually drink. And then, and then sure enough, he was teaching himself how to drink. And then we got him what's called a Bailey's chair. And we started trying to feed him like these little meatballs. And then we started trying to feed him by hand. And he was so gentle, even though he's a huge mastiff pit bull. You know, he's letting me put my hand completely in his mouth to place this food in the back of his mm, throat. Mm. And uh, what started off as a few morsels became, you know, full on meals. And by the end of about two months, he had figured out how to eat and he had figured out how to drink. And therefore his life was saved. And he came home to live with us. And he was a pretty intimidating dog. Yeah. You know, he had that one tooth that would always be hanging out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the scraggle yeah. tooth. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he was a big boy. And, but he had the, the greatest energy that you've ever, ever seen in a dog. And what was so remarkable about it was that 
um, we were able to, to train him and get him the time he needed for a therapy certification. So we have a program called Miracle Mutts and Miracle Mutts is our canine assisted ac activities program. So we take a couple dozen certified therapy dogs that we've certified through our program. Some of them are prison dogs that have graduated positive change. Some of them are, are not from our rescue, but we go to institutions, hospital. We have a contract with Dignity Health in Bakersfield. We go to their three hospitals. We go to every type of adult daycare, anywhere people are suffering and could benefit from the human animal bond we visit. Again, everything you can imagine. We go to Cal State University, Bakersfield on finals week. We go to disasters where there's mm. earthquakes or fires. Or so cool. We go to the Amazon, um, the Amazon uh, warehouse during the holidays because the so fucking over because they're just yeah. dying in there. So yeah, we bring yeah, a bunch yeah. of you know, and it's the it's the greatest program in the world. And Hooch became part of that program. And at the Valley Achievement Center for non it's nonverbal autistic youth. So there's a lot of kids with autism. There's a lot of nonverbal kids. And nonverbal kids, you know, struggle in a particular way. It's, it's a social affliction, you know. And so a lot of dogs are not fit for that environment. You know, really loud kids with, you know, socially who have a hard time with mm, touch. They yeah, can be, yeah. And what Hooch would do when we'd take him to the Valley Achievement Center is just lay down with his bib. He had his Hooch bib to control his drool because <laughs> sure. he drooled. He couldn't swallow. Right, right, right. And these kids that had never been able to have a dog, never been able to really love on a dog, Hooch would basically go into this comatose state where they could crawl all over him, wow. do whatever they wanted to do. And there was a one kid in particular named Kichai who had never spoken a word, never said his parents' name, and his first word was Hooch. Whoa. Yeah. And his dad messaged me on, on Facebook somewhat recently. And I was like, hey, man, I'll never forget what you guys did for Kichai and for you know bringing Hooch into the Valley Achievement Center. and. And uh, it was a really, really special experience because these kids got to be exactly who they are with a dog, which yeah. had not really been possible up to that yeah. point. And we had two dogs in particular, Fred and Hooch, who could both who both thrived in that environment. And uh, so that's my favorite story I in love terms it, of. Uh, and then Hooch. Now we've had five dogs whose tongues have been ripped out. Is that right? Five dogs, including Courage, another fighting dog, who you know I brought back from from Ohio. And he, he just went to foster, which is remarkable. Wow. It's so unbelievable that he's now, he was a very driven fighting dog. I mean, scars over every square yep. inch of his chest and yep. face. And he, when I brought him back in the car and again, he couldn't eat or drink either. I had to give him, I had to give him lactated ring. I had to give him an IV every three, like every 13 hours, you know, I was giving him full bags of IVs and, um, having that dog around public was a liability. Yep. Not anymore. Like yep. he's, he's a. He's, it's, it's crazy, man. Dogs are very resilient. When you have a dog like that, I mean, you don't have to take me through the full process, but do you, do you feel like every dog, every, every dog you can get, you can get them back? Yeah. Um, you have to work with a dog's instincts, their breed, their trauma. Um, I, I think, I mean, not every dog is going to be able to be like your dog, right? Or not every dog is going to be able to be like my dog, but every dog is capable of becoming their best self, mm -hmm. you know, which usually means having addressed various fears, like, mm -hmm. like all of us. That's mm -hmm. the beautiful thing about, about dog training is dog training is people training. Mm -hmm. You know, Absolutely. what, what do us in recovery in particular need? We need rules, boundaries, limitations, structure, 
exercise, discipline, affection. Affection. Those are the things we need. Yeah. And if we don't get those things, we are fucked. Yep. And that's all we focus on in <laughs> yeah. dog training are yeah. those things. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I think with with that kind of background, you can accomplish just about anything with a dog. It just requires a tremendous amount of patience. And you can't anthropomorphize dogs. It's one of the biggest mistakes yep. we make yep. is thinking that dogs experience human emotions and that and that we can kind of um, force ourselves on them with our, like when I was telling you earlier that Jason Mori, one of our positive change students was an expert at channeling positive energy into a dog. He's not doing that by talking in a high pitched voice yeah, yeah, yeah. and, all and loving all over know, him. I he know. is literally conceptualizing it and he's breathing it into yep. existence. Yep. He's breathing in, you know, self-esteem and love. And he's breathing that like, it's For not sure. an experience of, of getting, oh, getting dear, excited. Yeah. Yeah. excitement means reactivity in a totally. lot of dogs totally. and so many people ruin dogs through excitement yeah, yeah. I, I i've seen it so many fucking times man I, you know uh you know th there was a uh i don't know if i've ever talked about it on here before but there was uh so so back when i when i was living in venice you know i had i had a pretty magical dog named boss and i, t I, I had two like kind of main dogs boss and venice and uh they're incredible dogs man and and uh i would was kind of known you, you know, my dad was the, the 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 head of the Humane Society of the United States at the time. So no, like, he yeah, was man. not. So they were like, yeah, he was. What? Uh, yeah, he was the the, the that, that he he quit his job and did that for ten years. With uh, he was like the chairman of the board, and they'd done all this stuff for like. And he was super big dog guy. I mean, growing huh. up, it's like. He didn't give a I fuck didn't see about that people, coming, dude. like, yeah, he's a big, big dog guy. So like, especially like in the anti-dog fighting and done all this stuff. And so I'd known all these different shelters around and whenever there was sort of like a real big problem dog, I would always take the dog in. Ah. And I remember there was one time where it was sort of like in the beginning of my career and, and uh, I lived right across the street from the Venice dog park, which, which at the time was kind of a pretty gnarly dog that park. And, and uh, they, they had like um, up on the wall there, they had pictures of dogs that had died at that park, you know, cause there's fights and people would like leave Did their dogs. Really? Yeah. It was a pretty gnarly park back then. You know, people would like, you know, a lot of guys would like bring their pits to the, the park and then go to the beach. And then yeah. it was like, there would just be like fights and no one would be able to break it yeah, up. Yeah. And boss would always like get in the middle of dog. He's just such an incredible magical dog. And I go on about boss all day, but, but, um, sounds like boss and Marley were cousins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, boss was one of these dogs, man. Like I, I would, you know, he would, every set of every movie I ever did, I'd take him. I would cross the country with him without a leash and collar. I mean, New York City, he was like just right there. He's just fucking great. And uh, I mean, people on sets, like when I would work, they would be so much more happy to see him. I mean, he was like, he was the fucking dude. And he pissed on Ben, ben Stiller's trailer, which is really cool too. When he was, <laughs> that's a whole different fucking thing. But anyway, so uh, I remember one morning, we, it was, uh, you know, I was going to like a day of auditions and I go to the boxing gym and I had just done, I think the Pacific and there was some thing for the Pacific that night. And my, my girlfriend who's my wife now, uh, she was at the house and I got up real early with boss. I was running around the dog park and I saw across the street, this big old, uh, pit bull who's intact kind of walking by himself down, down, uh, down Pacific Avenue. And I was like, look, a dog like that, that big, that he's going to get put down immediately if they take him in and. So I went over with boss, we crossed the street and he went down this little walk street and I tried to call him over and he was like, I could tell he's a little bit aggressive. And I took my, my belt off and boss got on one side of him and I got on the other and we kind of lured him over and I got him in my belt and he was like really fucking fighting me. And I took him back to my house and I put him in my garage and I put some water in my garage and me and boss went to the day and I said to my 
to my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and say, hey, listen, baby, there's a big fucking monster in the garage, all right? Just don't go in the garage. I don't know this fucking guy. Just let him be. Maybe put some water in if you're feeling, you know, if you're yeah. feeling up for it. My wife's like an ICU trauma nurse, and she's a bad motherfucker. And, 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 and uh, I was like, just, just don't go in there for the day. And uh, so I did my whole day, and then I come home from this, like, stupid event, and, and I get home that night. And sure enough, like my wife's in bed with that dog with another, you know, like she's got like three dogs in bed with her, you know. And um, oh, so for the next few weeks, man, me and this dog, we just were kicking it. And I was like bringing him into the pack and we were, we were training together at the park and we were doing our thing. And I remember we were outside the park and I saw these two young guys staring at the dog and they're pointing at the dog. And we had put pictures up. We went yeah. to go see if he was chipped. He wasn't chipped. And we, and, and these guys are like pointing at the dog kind of like they knew him. And, um, I went over to the guys. I was like, hey, you guys know this dog? And they were like, well, he looks a lot like Deuce, but like Deuce is Shoreline Larry's dog, who's this, you know, part of Shoreline Crips down there. And yeah. that couldn't be Deuce because the way you guys are like, Deuce is a fucking killer yeah, a and menace. Deuce would bite you. Deuce would yeah. kill your dog. Deuce yeah, would yeah. Do that. It looks like Deuce, but it couldn't be Deuce. I was like, yeah, no, this dog's cool as fuck, man. Yeah. So we, we went back and we went home. We were going somewhere for the day and I was driving away in my truck with Boss and Deuce and I saw this like hoopty car like pull up and I see them talking to the, this woman in the car and they're pointing at the direction I went. I knew they were, I just knew they were talking about this dog. So I drove over to them. I said, what's going on? She's like, you know, I, we're looking for our dog, Deucey. We're looking for our dog. And I said, yeah, I hear Deuce is real aggressive. This isn't that dog. But if you want to come take a look, you can come take a look. So... I opened the window and she goes, oh my God, it's Deucey, it's Deucey. And this dog like went to the other side of the car and wanted nothing to do with her. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, you know, the dog's intact and, and you know, that's worth a lot of money. And, and, mm. and I, I was like, I don't know if I can just give this dog to this, to this woman. Mm. She said, that's my dog. And I said, um, well, how do I know it's your dog? She said, hang on a second. She gets on the phone and she calls her, her nephew. And then she puts me on with Shoreline Larry, right? Oh, wow. And he's like, hey, motherfucker, give my aunt my, that dog back, motherfucker. You don't know yeah. who this is. I was like, look, Shoreline, first of all, <laughs> like if this is your dog, I, you know what I mean? I've had it for the last few weeks. I've fed yeah. it. I've bathed it. I've been taking yeah. care of it. You know, like- he's no so longer like, an asshole. Like, like, yeah. So like, just be cool. With, like, like, like yeah. stop all that shit. You know yeah. what I mean? And he was like, okay, cool. And he was actually kind of cool about that. And then he was like, look, it's my dog. And- so I went over to the auntie and I said, look, if, if, uh, if this is your dog, I tried to get all inspector gadget on it. And I was like, if this is your dog, well, this dog is chipped. So all we got to do is go to the vet and it will show your address, even though I knew it wasn't chipped. Yeah. And she goes, no, nah, no, nah, Deucey ain't chipped. So I was like, fuck, I got to oh, give the no. dog back. So I gave her the dog and I gave her a leash and all this stuff. And she said where she lived and she lived up at seventh and Brooks, which is almost three miles away from my house. And she, you know, I got back on with Shoreline. He said he, had, you know, there was a problem. He had just bit a guy at the house and there was a thing and maybe he had gotten out. There's a lot of people hanging out at his house, whatever. So three days later, I'm hanging out at my house. Again, three miles away from his house. And I'm hanging out and boss is laying on this side of my lap and Venice is laying on this side. And I get a phone call from my neighbor and she goes, hey, are you going to let boss inside? And I go, what do you mean? <laughs> and she goes, you're going to let, I'm like, boss is laying in my fucking lap. She's like, no, boss has been outside your house for the last three hours. That's so I was good. like, what? Well, I go downstairs and it's fucking deuce. Went three miles and found our fucking house. That's so you know good. what I mean? Yeah. And like, like I just never in a million years thought a dog could fuck. It, yeah. it, it blew my yeah, fucking yeah. mind. Like, yeah. how is that even possible? That's spectacular. And it's just, it's just, uh, he wanted to be in a better place, man. Yeah. He wanted to be in a different place. You yeah. know? Yeah. You're asking about 
like my favorite dog story. I have, um, I would be remiss if I didn't share about my little, my little daughter. Okay. Keep in mind, like up until I had kids, I had like five to eight very reactive, large pit bulls or mastiffs living at my house. Okay. You know, so before our organization had a ranch, we were completely foster based. So all these dogs are at my house, they're liabilities. They're either people reactive or dog reactive or both. And uh, so that's kind of like, you know, I've got several pit bulls tattooed on me. Right. And along comes this, um, this little poodle, this little poodle that we get, I get a call from Modesto animal control and they've got a dog with fractured front legs and uh, they want us to rescue it, which we did all kinds of special needs dogs. It was totally normal for us to take in dogs like that. We just had a dog previous. So um, she's, turns out she's got a broken back, broken pelvis, broken Mm -hmm. front leg, like shattered front legs. And this dog has been casted, has had casts on for like two months. Things haven't been set. They're infected. It's basically gangrenous. Uh, It was terrible. Mm -hmm. So the one leg came off immediately. And then uh, we had to make this really difficult decision of, um, you know, in order to save her life, she had a bone infection. So you you guys have to take off her other front leg. And they're like, you know, so now she's going to have no front legs. You know, how is she going to no front legs? Like I've never seen a dog with no front legs. Never. You didn't know the, you know, how that would work. And uh, the staff at the veterinary hospital didn't want to do the surgery. They say, this is Again, cruel and unusual. We're not going to amputate this dog's last remaining front leg. You need to put this dog to sleep. You know, you need to put this dog to sleep. So the lead veterinary technician would not sit for the surgery. We still did it, but she wouldn't sit for it. Wow. And um, so then we bring this little girl home, and it was a sight, man. It was a really difficult sight. She's got a complete scar here, and no, all legs are gone. And it's totally shaved down. It's just skin. And you see this beautiful helpless little poodle she's a poodle maltese with no front legs and you're just going oh my fucking god like did i make the right decision and again social media is doing its thing where uh, you know i go from like the the rescue you know savior to uh, you know this guy is just doing this for likes and he's but i knew we could i I knew there was hope that we could save her but again we're getting a lot of shit and as an organization you got to be mindful of that of what people are saying so i'm just going man i god i hope this works god i hope she's okay god i hope so we brought her home and again, she had a, her, her worst injuries was her pelvis. It was shattered and she had a you know broken uh, back. But that little girl, that little dog, you know, we put a little shirt on her and we'd, we'd get her to start walking a little yeah, bit at a time yeah. and a little bit at a time. And, and then over the weeks, her, her hip flexors loosen up so she can kind of sit up. And then she starts, you know, moving and scooting. And we have a bunch of dogs in the house. And also my, my kiddo just came home that same week. So we brought her home the same week. I got Whoa. a brand new child. Whoa. And I'll, bro, I'll show you, I got to show your wife too. I'll show you guys some videos of Cora teaching my daughter how to walk. But within a few months, not only could that dog walk on its back legs, you know, vertically. Vertically. But, yeah. But it could climb stairs. What And the then, fuck? so since then, I've now had her for six years and she can, she can make it up a set of stairs in about two seconds. She goes vertically. Bip, 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 bip. Yeah. She can jump upstairs like a kangaroo. Like a kangaroo. She does great in her cart too. Her cart actually got stolen um, somewhat recently. Somebody stole the dog's cart. Yeah, you, you, there's a special place in hell for that motherfucker. It's made out of metal, and so you never know. With I mean, I've been a tweaker before. You never yeah, know, sure. man. So I don't know. But she watching, you know, going from a point of, of thinking, not only did we potentially do the, make the wrong decision, but 
that dog never doubted herself for a second. There was a short period of time where she was, cause she was a feral dog too. She was scared of people. So she's, she's also going, who the fuck are these people? Am I safe? Aside from all of her injuries, like what, what is all this, you know? And to watch that dog, same as Hooch, like to watch her physically rehabilitate is one thing that was radically impressive. Like that was so impressive, but it was her spiritual transformation where she, I swear to God, rainbows shoot out of this dog's ears. She is the brightest, Mm -hmm. most wonderful. I can't help, but sometimes I'm like, I can't even look at you right now. Core Rose, because she's the most adorable, most wonderful. She just, and when I think to myself, which happens fucking often because I'm highly imperfect, when I think to myself, I can't get through it. When I think to myself, like, God damn, all it takes like two seconds to yeah, spend the time. Like, oh, Jesus, what's wrong with you, Scott? And she comes into the prisons all the time. Yeah. She lives in my backpack. I have a yeah, backpack for her. So, you know, most people don't know she's only got two legs because she's chilling in the backpack and her chin is right here. And you want to see a prison yard light up. And again, this is a this is a white poodle with pink ears, <laughs> sparkly pink nail polish yeah. on her bottom feet. Yeah. And and you know, just this this but with a white afro. Yeah. And the guys go absolutely nuts yeah. for that. Nuts for that dog. And I had a I have a student, Michael, he he was in our program. He's on death row. Uh they disbanded death row somewhat recently. So San Quentin kind of sent all the death row. Uh, guys out to various prisons and and it was really special to watch michael develop a relationship with her because you know he's um you know for 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 now he's in he's in prison for for a very long time and he has been in prison for a very long time and he uh was raised with poodles with poodle maltese oh, wow. just like her wow. and so you know his mom you know also came into graduation and i got to sit at their table with cora and got to watch this, all these memories of him going back and forth with his 82 year old mom about all the poodles they used to have when he was a kid. And um, it's, it is, but again, it's kind of funny because they're not pities or mastiffs. I'd be used to being the guy who comes, but now I'm, now I got a golden retriever from Beirut and a two legged pink poodle, (laughs) you know, oh, how, how things change. But uh, it is, it is truly like the blessing of a lifetime to get to walk into to such a dark, oppressive, you know, energetically oppressive place with those two bright sources yeah. of light and to just just let them do their thing, yeah. man. Yeah. And what's the coolest thing too is guys will come around whenever, we always start on one side of the yard. Our pod that we work as on the other side. But if I start at one, then I can go talk to everybody. Sure. And I, you'll never know who you're gonna meet and sure. recruit for, you're gonna recruit students for your program. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get the crowd will start to come around and they'll start to be, and then I'll take her out of the backpack and then they'll see she only has two legs yeah. and then it's just mind blown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they immediately process it the same way too. You see them go, Oh, you know what? This little girl's teaching me something Fuck right yeah. now. Yeah. What a tough little girl. Why yeah. is it that we're so like you were talking about before, man, there is something so special about humans and dogs. We are inexorably linked for some reason where what they're trying to communicate to us, what they're trying to yeah. tell us, what they're trying to, to vibe with us on, what yeah, they're trying to convey. We, it just yeah. lands. You know? there's no other two species like yeah. it man it's it's so nuts yeah it's yeah. so nuts wow man i i would i would love i would love to come check it out man yeah. it'd be such it'd be so cool it's really um it, it's not as formal as you think it, it's as simple as just you know we'll get an email out to the associate warden or to our, our lieutenant and we could come up you could do a podcast there you know there's a, any there's a variety of different things you know we've developed such a good relationship with the administrative staff at our prisons they see the value of positive change. They see the value of the energy that we bring. So at this point, everyone's really cool with us. They, yeah. they just want to know how they helped us keep the program going during COVID. 
the wow. prisons were shut down, yeah. man. Everybody, you want to talk about cruel and unusual. You talk about the prison system during yeah. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But they let us keep it going. So they let us come onto prison grounds and operate that program at a fence line. So we couldn't come into the unit, but we could stand on one side of the fence and still communicate the program, which was remarkable. And uh, I'm, I'm really proud of how far we've come with that program and, and how much I really do feel from an institutional level, from a, from, from a prison administration level, that opinions are changing, that things are shifting towards wellness, they're shifting towards programming. People are starting to take it seriously. People are starting to really look at recidivism. There's, there's organizations like the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. There's all these different entities that are really working hard to um, lay the foundation for progress because, you know, I mean, the United States of America incarcerates 25% of the world's incarcerated men, 33% of the world's incarcerated women. We're 4% of the population. We account for 25% of the world's incarcerated. You know, it is, and 70% of those incarcerated are going to reoffend, which also means creating victims, and end up back in prison at a cost of $100 billion a year to the American taxpayer. $100 billion a year we're spending on a prison industrial complex that is serving almost no good. And on top of that, you know, if we do find ways to allow programming in, and if we do cultivate and nurture programs, you have a population of individuals that I guarantee you are going to make that have the potential to make the world a better place. Oh, fuck yeah. Like we talked about before, there is a fortitude and a resilience in the incarcerated population that not many of us have. And they can convey that message and they can teach us and they can show us by virtue of what they've struggled through and been through and, and how they've succeeded, how they've maintained that humanity and even grown their humanity in prison. They, ha they have so much to offer. And right now we're not leveraging them whatsoever. Think about this also. This is the one that really gets me is that the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated populations are the only ones we're allowed to openly discriminate against. Our society openly discriminates against Absolutely. the incarcerated full stop, both legally in terms of, of, you know, basically challenges towards hiring. You can't vote. You can't, there's a bunch of different rights that you lose, but, but socioculturally we're basically allowed because of lockup raw and a bunch of this other shit that we see on television to view inmates as, or, or formerly incarcerated as these, as these bad individuals that we have to keep distance between ourselves right. and them. That's right. When in reality, these are incredible human beings that have the ability to make our lives better and to That's teach right. us lessons about ourselves and other, and human beings that are invaluable. And uh, you know, there's 10 million kids that are directly affected by incarcerated parents. Are we just forgetting about them? You know, we break that cycle of incarceration and we provide hope and opportunity for them. If we keep going down this position of the, the punitive, the, the punitive model for incarceration has never worked from from the formation of the, the prison industrial complex in 94 with the, with the crime bill to now it has never worked. And instead it's, it's virtually enslaved entire populations. And yeah. we've done very little to improve that. And um, I think positive change is, is just one example of a number of examples that can make immeasurable change in the lives of the incarcerated and really help all of us move forward together because these are our brothers. Absolutely. These are American human being thinking, feeling souls with tremendous potential that deserve to be loved, that deserve that second chance. All of us have fucked up. I mean, Fuck every it, single amen. person that's listened to this podcast has fucked up that's and right. probably fucked up immeasurably right. and probably violated deep principles in their core that's that right. they are fucking ashamed of. Right. Well, so have these people, that's but you right. know what? Let's let's forgive. Let's sure. move forward and let's get better together. You know? right. And as crime and violence soars in this country right now, there's no there's no population that can have a bigger effect on the people that are committing those crimes as people have gone through it 
been through it, been punished, served mm -hmm. their time, and have learned from it. Yeah. You know, there's that's an it's an immense power. I'm that, so glad that, that you they said have. That. I'm so it's glad an immense you said power that. that they have. You're exactly right because so many of the population that are the most disenfranchised are guys who have already done terms in prison, maybe shorter terms in prison, and are stuck in that cycle. They are yeah. stuck on or, that or it's now. youngsters, or it's youngsters sure. knowing that that's where they're headed, sure. and and the, and 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 that they they haven't experienced it themselves and and it's been glamorized and stigmatized as 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 this is the only way uh yeah. and and you know i mean so many of the folks that we've gotten to talk to are people who have kind of been through that prison been through that process and all they want their their sole purpose mm -hmm. in in life is to go reach those mm -hmm. the, the, those youngsters yeah. you know and, and they're perhaps the only ones qualified to do so who are, who are they going to listen to they're yeah. not going to listen to yeah. me you know yeah. what i mean they're not going to listen to you know yeah yeah, like we had we had graduation. We have a boys juvenile program at Camp Kilpatrick in Malibu, and we had graduation last night. And the two teachers of that program are David Galavis and Dedante Farmer. Both of them served basically 20 years in prison and were students in our program for years. They are now out of prison. They're both professional dog trainers, and they teach that course to incarcerated boys. I can have a limited impact in there. I, I do my best, but it's pretty obvious I'm not them. Dedante, watching Dedante with those students and watching him apply himself and watching him relate to them and watching how cued in to him they are because he's got an immense amount of credibility. Yep. You know, he yep. served 18 years in prison on level four yards. That is extremely, as That's a right. child, That's right. that is extremely difficult to do. And, and he's a born teacher. He's a born teacher and a born trainer. And so are so many of our incarcerated brothers and sisters. And they're we're attempting to do a lot of different things within the juvenile, you know, criminal justice system. We've kind of disbanded the youth authority. There's a whole different approach towards programming and education, but we, we have, there's, there's big time limits to what we can accomplish in there. Unless you leverage the formerly incarcerated population to go in and relate with those kids, you know, feel those kids, hear those kids, see those kids, because they're not going to have that same relationship with even certain educators or certainly not with correctional staff. Yeah. And uh, the, the way to get those kids to really focus on the prize and really understand is, is to have uh, guys like Dante and David, you know, show them the way. That's, uh, amen, bro. Yeah. Um, you, uh, do you have anything, do you have anything for us or for me? It's just always something we do at the end, man. Oh man. No, no, zero pressure on it. Just if you, if you got anything, we want to give you a shot. I guess the only thing I really want to do is send a lot of love to you, man. Oh, thanks, um, man. Ever since I've been involved in this work, you know, it is a, it's an uphill battle. We're, we're advocating for basically two and a half million incarcerated individuals, countless other, you know, millions of folks who have been incarcerated with very little spotlight on what that experience is like. Um, the challenges they face, the suffering they endure. We've, we've basically sucked all the humanity out of the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated population. And I've wished for a very long time that that somebody who's who's can reach a lot of people would would share that love and have that empathy and that respect and that compassion hmm. and and to see it on display so unabashedly like you don't hide it i mean i couldn't believe when i saw your first podcast but i was like is he please tell me he's at Calpatria. Is he really <laughs> doing a podcast from there? This is my dude. It's so good. really just what I wanted to tell you and what I wanted to encourage people out there to do is to see the best in people and to forgive yeah. and to love and to turn on that empathy because resentment, anger, and even for victims' families. I don't think victims' families necessarily want, you know, if they were balanced or if, if they were honest with themselves that they, they don't want continual retribution or suffering as the, as the antidote to what they're feeling. I think the best thing that, that, that somebody who was involved in a, in a crime, uh, 
can do is to get their life right and is to to turn their life around and turn it into something positive and um they are perhaps like most uniquely fitted to do so and um just to get back to what i wanted to communicate about about the incarcerated population is um it has been profoundly difficult for me as a as a prison reform advocate to hear and feel how much antipathy and hatred and lack of understanding there is for for people i consider you know brothers and sisters um and, and we're doing our best to try to showcase and really socially profile who, who these individuals are and the great, um, the great amount of good they're capable of. But, but I am constricted within what I can do. So I just really wanted to honor what you've accomplished here and honor um, the stories you've been able to tell and, and the empathy you've been able to generate for a population that is desperate for it. And I think it's so important and I'm so grateful to be here, man. And I'm so grateful to be fucking making eye contact with you right <laughs> Thanks, now. Man. It's really, really special. man. Thank you, man. It's special yeah. for us as well. And, uh, and bless you, man. Bless yeah. you in your work. And, and, uh, please give our love, please give our love, uh, to everybody there, man. And, and, and let them know that we're coming if they'll yeah. have us and, and, uh, you can yeah. wear Cora Rose in, into the prison. We can Let's put go. her in the backpack and you can bring her in. Okay, that's what's up. You could probably even bring your dog, to be honest. Yeah, fucking Bam Bam's a nut, man. Yeah. Bam, Bam, Bam Bam's cool. Say Bam Bam yeah. like doesn't like other dogs, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it would we depend you. on if we had uh, if we had dogs in there at that time. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'd have to, but um, yeah, you would love it there. It's not very far. It's only two and a half hours. Yeah, from man. Here, it's, so. Yeah, yeah. No, or, no. you know, Camp Kilpatrick program. Let's right go. down the road. Yeah, that's what Just I was going to say, away. man. With the with the youngsters, yeah. I, I, I would I, I would love that. I would yeah. love to talk to some of them. Yeah, and maybe bring some some of our folks to them. Yeah, yeah. You know that there's an interesting. Th I'll say this. And I'll shut up. There is there as dog trainers, we try to communicate a whole bunch of things to human beings about their energy, about their body language, about what I told you about communicating. I've got you, and and all of these things, and it can take years to communicate some of these these things that come naturally to the incarcerated population yeah. we have a, a student at our boys program right now who who came through in the middle of the program no experience and we gave him two we gave him one very difficult dog and simply by virtue of being next to him this dog you could see breathe and you could see this dog fall in line because this young man although he is somewhat tortured mentally he's been through a lot he's in the, in the process of suffering this young man has this, this fortitude in him by virtue of what he's been through, this strength, this like this and this self-confidence, this, this, this self-esteem that those dogs see and those dogs feel. And there are, um, to my, in my experience, there is no population better suited to train and rehabilitate dogs than the incarcerated or formerly incarcerated for sure. You know, they're just in touch with if they choose to be, they're in touch with their emotions and their feelings and, and, uh, more than anybody I've ever met, you know, that's beautiful, man. Thank cool. you, brother. Yeah. You're I very really welcome, man. It, man. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. man, you're something else, dude. I'm proud of you, brother. Thank you. Man. Yeah, likewise. Let me, so man. let me ask you one, one question. This doesn't have to be on sure. the podcast, yeah, but yeah, what, what, uh, what experience in your life led you to want to do this? Like what, the, the, the podcast? Yeah. When do you wake up? No, well specifically who you're advocating for and who you're giving a voice to like, you know, what, what the fuck led you to be advocating for the, the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated? Um, I, I mean, what with, with that population specifically or, or, or anybody that I have on? Well, here? I mean, I was specifically, I was thinking about, about, 
the first podcast I saw at Cal Patrick, yeah, yeah. You know, um, specifically I, as it relates to that. I mean, the, 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 I, I think, I think the specifics are, are, are around that is, and, and I mean, I'm, I mean, I probably said something about it before, but I, I, I mean, like, look, man, like when you, when you talk to people, I mean, like talk about, you, you, you know, this kid, this kid, Alex, I mean, he's yeah. not a kid anymore, right? He's like 36 years old yeah. now and he spent his life in prison. Like when you look at like the things that he was doing, at 11 years old and 12 years old and 13 years old, it's the exact same shit I was doing. And, and, you know, like I've, I've, I've I, you know, I don't, I don't hide anything about like the dumb choices I've made and um, the things that I've done and the things that I've gotten away with. Um, and there's, 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 there's things that I've done that, you know, I have a ton of shame about and, yeah. and, and I regret deeply. Um, I think more than anything else, man, the, 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 the biggest, the biggest thing that, the biggest thing that I think separates me from a kid like Alex, and it's, it's 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 sort of like what maybe you were talking about a little bit, is you know I had an old man who was like right there with me, and mm -hmm. I, and I you know we started the conversation totally, before yeah. the cameras went on. You know the first time I ever got locked up, and I was telling you about how afraid I was of the fucking crickets in mm -hmm. the room. You know they let a guy in the room with me, and I was just a kid, and they let this guy, this big 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 dude, and he came into the room with me into the little cell with me. And the first thing he did is he stepped on those crickets. And I was like, Oh shit. He just went from the scariest guy in the world to like my fucking hero. Mm. And he sat down next to me and he had a cigarette weaved into his sock. He'd just stolen a van and we sat there together. And, and I told him it was my first time ever being locked up. And we, and I said, you know, I think more than anything else, what I'm mostly worried about is how much I'm going to disappoint my, my yeah, old man. Yeah. Yeah. He said, shit, dude, I've been in and out of jails and institutions since I was 12. You're the first guy who said that to me, who gave a fuck about what his dad thought. Wow. And that had like such wow. a profound effect yeah. on me. And like, look, man, it's like I had a dad who stuck by me. I yeah. had a dad who didn't give up on yeah. me. I had a dad who yeah. had the means and had the, 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 the appetite. Uh, to, 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 to not give up and yeah. to fight the fight and to keep yeah. believing there's no way yeah. I would be right here if, if it wasn't for yeah. that. And that's just by the grace of God. That's just the family I was born into. And mm -hmm. I think that like, when you look at, you know, I, I, my mom, my, 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 like I was always, you know, like you said, you see a kid, dude, we're all sweet, loving kids. We all love our families. We all want to please our families, make people proud. We mm -hmm. all want to be successful. We all want to raise families. We all love our kids. We all fuck up. We all have shame. We all yeah. have regret. We all have wishes. And every single one of those people did. It's mm -hmm. just some people don't have the means yeah. to, the, 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 the means or the infrastructure yeah. to kind of get themselves out of it. And I think yeah. that there's some real, you know, it's just not fair. Totally, it's totally not fair. It's just not yeah. fair. Yeah. And so it's like. To not have been believed in, like ever yeah man. Is, is not fair yeah man. yeah man yeah. so I, th I think that that's like a, a a big reason there and then and then also man it's it's just like when you look at not just like the state of discourse and how how bullshit how much bullshit is surrounded by every conversation about every major topic we're talking to people that don't actually experience it it was also the thing i was saying it's like i've gotten so much wisdom imparted on me and I'm so unbelievably grateful for my relationship with people who are, are incarcerated, have been yeah. incarcerated. What you were talking mm -hmm. about, years of self-reflection, years yeah. of being forced to confront yourself yeah. and, 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 and to not take totally. any sort of yeah. roads or short carries yeah. off. Yeah, man, yeah, it's yeah. like, I got to face it yeah. head on. It's, it's, that's a, yeah. it's a profound thing that I have not found you know, much in, in, the, in the outside world. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for that. And that's a wisdom, I, you know, I think, it, because I've been on some, I mean, it's such a crazy fucking world, but because I put some makeup on my face yeah. and like said some lines that somebody wrote that somehow gets me to be able to have these situations where I get to talk to folks 
who like really fucking walk the walk on yeah. all sides. Cops yeah. that are like good fucking yeah. cops that love their fucking communities that mm -hmm. put their life on the line to keep people safe. Yeah. You know, inmates that have, you know, paid their, their dues and, 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 and have gone in there and are so ready, are so fucking ready to get out there mm -hmm. and make this world a better place and doing, and, and are, and are some of the greatest fathers I've ever known totally. are guys who are fucking incarcerated totally. every second of every day, every breath that these guys take, they're totally. thinking about they're behaving. I mean, w w one lesson about fatherhood is just like, you know, my buddy, Rich Wilson down in Shreveport, he told me that, you know, you want to be a good dad. You know, you want to be a good dad, just stop doing all the shit that you don't want your kids to do. And I met guys in prison. I met guys yeah. in Calipatria who every fucking, every breath they take, they're considering their family. Yeah, and yeah, they're totally. considering their kids. 100%, yeah. And it's like that, you know, and like they don't get to be with those kids. They don't mm -hmm. get to, they, yeah. they, they don't get to see that. They don't get to have more of an influence. And, and so I, I don't know, man. I just think in, 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 in all walks of life, you, you know, there's, there's beauty and there's wisdom. And, and, <clears> and, and I think that, the uh you know the stereotypes and the bigotry and the making decisions before you know prison's a scary place you know these people are this way these yeah. people are that way yeah, yeah. i think that's cutting us off from from getting to the heart of, of yeah. what makes us all the same one of which is we all love our fucking dogs yeah you know what i mean our sure. dogs love us like i said they don't give a fuck such about a that, wonderful common you know? denominator right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i i uh, th like the thing i i'm most grateful for and and like happiest about is to um is the process of getting to believe in these guys like um walking into a place like that and, and just by just believing in somebody by just conveying to them hey man like i, I see you I, I believe in you uh to, to be able to do that to somebody who hasn't heard that and, and to be kind of um it is such a spiritually fulfilling experience for me because i, I tend not to think very much of myself I think we've gone over this sure. you know like i don't think much of myself and i, and I certainly don't think I don't think of much, I don't think as much of myself as I should. And so, um, I have a really hard time accepting that, that I'm okay. I have a really hard time accepting that I'm worthy, but when you see, when you see and feel your own pure energy by just believing in someone, by just sitting there and, and conveying love, when you see that like change somebody and when you see that affect somebody, your energy, your input, your agency over your situation, when you see that like really affect somebody who deserves to be believed in. It's just, the, it is such a spiritual experience, man. Like I got a couple guys and you know, they, they oftentimes call me big bro in there. And even if, even if they're older than me, you know, some of my students will call me big bro. And, um, God has that given me a sense of worth and, and not just a sense that, you know, we're all, you know, I, I feel especially knowing what it's like to have no purpose, you know, prior to sobriety, and just meandering through life just aimlessly with this with a with a, a hell of a disease like wrapped around my my myself to be able to find the you know this worth in myself by virtue of what we're doing in there god i'm so grateful to those guys for accepting me i'm so grateful to them for like loving me with all my bullshit mm -hmm. and all my problems and for welcoming me into their house and and letting me be my like very imperfect self and and God, it's, it's, it's a fellowship that I'm, I'm so grateful for, man. And I'm so grateful that you've, you know, created your own fellowship in that same realm. Cause like we talked about earlier, that positive streak is going to be felt, you know, all up and down that institution because of the love you brought. You Thank know? you, man. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And it's, it's really cool that we're going to, we're, we're, yeah. we're we'll definitely that. do it, man. Yeah, yeah definitely. Nice. You know what I always wanted to do? There was a fucking concert. I always yeah. wanted to put on a concert because yeah. Sea Yard, it's such a obvious play. Like, or, you know, I want to do is put on a, um, 
a skateboard competition. That's cool. You know, because Woodward West is right down the street, like you talked yeah, about that, with yeah, your buddy. Cool. And I my, can't what, sing or skateboard, but I know some people. Yeah, exactly. Sing, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, man. I got to coach yeah, my kids. It's in all football, good, man. Bro. Yeah, thank, thank you. Man. you. Thank Thanks you. for letting me uh, stick around and bullshit. Thank you, brother. Shirt for you guys. Thank you. Um, and man, God, just thanks again. This thank was, you. Uh, this was something else, man.